everybody. Welcome, welcome. Um, So today I'll be talking about, I'll give you an update as to what's going on in the Ukraine war. Um, We have a move by Zelensky that is questionable to say the least. Um, We also have uh, the Chinese ambassador clashing with an ABC news host, or CBS news host, excuse me. Not that it matters. ABC and CBS are virtually uh, indistinguishable. We have Chuck Todd prodding NATO to do more. I'll show you that clip, and we'll discuss that. Dave Rubin has had quite a week, and he has uh, debased himself in the face of an anti-gay backlash that is deeply personal. So I'll dive into that. That is quite a story. That is quite a story. Um, Then I have the confirmation of the Hunter Biden laptop being real. Now, you might think, well, why is that even relevant? There's actually a number of reasons why it's relevant. Number one being it was banned from social media at the time. Uh, But number two being there are two aspects of that story. The personal stuff where it shows Hunter Biden, you know, doing all sorts of compromising things. That I'm not a fan of leaking. Nobody should ever leak that. Uh, But what I am a fan of leaking is the corruption details that came out of the laptop. So... We're going to dive into that. I'll tell you what's real, what's not real, what's important, what's not important. Um, We have one of the most out-of-touch articles ever written run in Bloomberg. And uh, you're not going to believe it until I show you. (laughs) So stick around. That's a little later on in the show. And um, we also have somebody entering the Dumb Tweet Hall of Fame. Find out who it is and why. And that'll be, again, later on. So without further ado, let's get started. And we're going to kick it off with uh, Ukraine and Zelensky. So we got news yesterday uh, about an update in Ukraine. Now, of course, the, uh, the war is still 
raging over there. And as I told you early on, I feel like it's just a matter of time until uh, Russia takes Kiev because the Russian military is just far more powerful uh, than the Ukrainian military. Now, having said that, uh, there can be an insurgency, there can be a guerrilla war, and so, you know, it could, it could end up taking a lot longer than anybody thought, and we're already at that point. I mean, some people thought Putin would waltz in and take it in, in a couple days. Uh, that's, that isn't what happened. Um, so one update, which is very important, is that the UN just released some figures where they say there are about 10 million refugees that have left Ukraine. That's an astonishing number. That is absolutely stunning. Um, another update is, of course, Ukraine has been under martial law because there's a war going on. Well, Zelensky decided to announce something yesterday, which I want to share with you. So take a look at this. This is in Axios. They say, Zelensky announces ban on 11 Ukrainian political parties with ties to Russia. Huh. So let me give you some more specifics here. Uh, Axios says, Ukraine plans to ban 11 political parties with ties to Russia. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky announced in a video released via Telegram on Sunday, quote, any activity of politicians aimed at splitting or collaborating will not succeed, Zelensky said. So the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine decided to ban the activity of, here are the parties, Opposition Party for Life, Shari Party, Nashi Opposition Bloc, Left Opposition, Union of Left Forces, uh, State Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, Socialist Party of Ukraine, Socialist Party and Vladimir Saldo Bloc, Zelensky said. So these are the parties that they're banning. They are claiming, hey, this is because of Russian influence. We're in the middle of a war and Russia has um, effectively infiltrated these parties and they're representing the interests of, of Russia. That's the argument that they make. Now, I want to I take note of something, which I think is pretty important here. You do not see the banning of, for example, the Azov Battalion from the National Guard. Well, the Azov Battalion are card-carrying neo-Nazis. They admit that up to 20% of the people in the Azov Battalion are neo-Nazis. They say that. My guess is, of course, the number is significantly higher. Um, but they're still part of the Ukrainian National Guard, and they're able to operate with Nothing getting in their way whatsoever. They're probably getting armed right now by the United States. There's also no arming of uh, a far-right party called Svoboda. So none of the, you know, the far-right or neo-Nazi parties or neo-Nazi-aligned parties have been banned. Hmm. Why is that? Well, my guess is it's because these are some of the most experienced on-the-ground fighters, and Zelensky doesn't want to take some of his strongest fighters and throw them under the bus. Now, having said that, if you're looking at the situation objectively, if anybody was going to be on the chopping block for a ban, if you're doing it based on ideology and you're doing it based on how big of a problem they are, I mean, I would guess the neo-Nazis would be first on the chopping block, but that's obviously not what happened here. And most of the parties that are listed are indeed left parties. So um, there's, what is it? There, one of the parties, there's 450 seats in the Ukrainian parliament and the first thing, the first party they listed here, the opposition party for life, that party holds, I think, 10% of the seats in parliament. And he just banned basically 10% of parliament. So this strikes me as uh, totally unacceptable. Now, by the way, I've looked deeper into this, and it turns out 
it's true. Some of these parties, I don't know if it's the case for all of them, but some of these parties listed do have ties to Russia. But my reaction to that is, if you want to keep a united Ukraine, and you want to say, for understandable reasons, in fact, I would argue this makes perfect sense, uh, no, you can't have the Donbass region. No, you can't have Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, you want to say that to Russia, okay, well, then those areas need representation. That if you have a number of ethnic Russians in Ukraine who might have very different politics from some ethnic Ukrainians, well then if you want them to be in Ukraine, you're going to have to represent their interests. They're going to have to have a voice in the system. Now, I get it. There's a war going on, and under a war, you know, they went to martial law. You have levels of authoritarianism and control that perhaps you wouldn't have in peacetime. I understand that, but I disagree with it. And I don't think the best way to combat any form of authoritarianism is with your own authoritarianism. And that's effectively what's going on here. So, again, most of these parties are basically really small, and they have no voting influence. But one of the parties that that are banned here represents 10% of the Ukrainian parliament. And, look, as a matter of principle, you really shouldn't ban them. And I'll say something controversial here. In terms of representation, I wouldn't even ban the far-right parties. Now, I would ban the Azov Battalion from getting any sort of weapons from the U.S., I would ax them from the National Guard, regardless of how good of a fighting force they are, uh, because you can't, like, be arming neo-Nazis and then pluck your chest out and say, well, we're the good guys here. Well, not when you're arming neo-Nazis, you're not. So I I would ax them in terms of getting armed and being a part of the apparatus in the government that can be hired and fired. But in terms of the ability for people to vote, and have uh, representatives that they choose, you can't. You can't even ban them. But what we're seeing here is uh, it's questionable to say the least. And I, I do not agree with it, even though some of these parties are influenced by Russia. I mean, look, let's draw an analogy. Let's say, let's say for argument's sake, the Republican Party in the U.S. Um, snuggles up to Russia. And there's some – Russia ends up funding – some wings of the Republican Party, okay? And then we have uh, a war that breaks out here. Let's say a civil war breaks out here, and you have effectively the, the right versus the left in that civil war. Well, if there was a Democratic president, and the Democrat turns around and says, I'm now going to ban the Republican Party because, you know, there's some funding of the Republican Party that's sourced to Russia, I would say, even if that's true, I don't care. You can't ban them. That's a step too far. And um, they're doing it, and uh, it's, it's not good, man. It's not good. Because another thing, another thing that you generally see is whenever there are, you know, authoritarian power grabs, very rarely do they actually relinquish that power when the time comes. And you guys know that. I mean, it happened with the Patriot Act in the United States. It's spying on everybody, and then they just kept extending it and extending it and extended it, extending it. And it went, the scope of it, was interpreted as much more broadly than even the authors of it it, it said. Like, Sensenbrenner was like, we didn't want the Patriot Act to do all that. They didn't want the Patriot Act to spy on everybody, take away due process, take away your protection from unreasonable search and seizure, collect everybody's metadata, have, you know, a rubber stamp FISA court. They didn't want that. And so not only does it stay the law, but then it expands. And so now you're giving Zelensky the authority and the ability to say, whoever my political opponents are, uh, we're going to ban them. And you know who that reminds me a lot of? Vladimir Putin. (laughs) That's what Putin does. 
So I get it. There is a, there is a, a fundamental key difference here, which is Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Russia is the aggressor. Don't get it twisted. Don't fall for any of the propaganda or, you know, the narrative humpers who tell you otherwise. That's definitely what happened. But what I'm saying is, even given that fact, you can't just start banning political parties. You can't. And by the way, let me just say, I'm skeptical that all of the parties even are influenced by Russia. Some of them are, because again, I, I looked deeper into it, and it turns out it's true that some of them are. Um, but even if they are, number one, I don't care, but I don't even think all of them are. I think some of them aren't, and it's just like, hey, I want to ban my, uh, the opposition parties. So that's, I don't like that at all. I don't like that at all. And if you want to say we, ha- we need a united Ukraine and Russia shouldn't get an inch of our territory, if you want to say that, which is an argument I agree with, uh, you also should be willing to allow in voices that are totally antithetical to what you believe, Zelensky. So you also got to speculate, though. I don't know how much of this is directly coming from Zelensky and how much of it is other forces within Ukraine. And that will, I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that. But what we do know is this is an official action that's been taken. And it is quite noteworthy that, you know, Azov Battalion wasn't kicked out of the National Guard. The Svoboda Party wasn't banned. The far right and the neo-Nazi aligned are still active. And, um, but they're going after almost every single left party under the sun here. Got to say, guys, I just don't agree with it. I think it goes way too far. The answer to combat authoritarianism is not more authoritarianism, is not your own authoritarianism. And that's why it's important to think about these conflicts, not just in terms of good guy, bad guy, but you have to think of these conflicts in terms of uh, principles, trying to hold objective standards. So there you have it. Eleven political parties are banned in Ukraine. They're claiming ties to Russia. Some of them it's true. Others it might not be true. But either way, you got to allow them to operate because Let's be clear, that is part and parcel of free speech, free expression, free association, representative government. So if you really want to portray yourself to the world as the beacon of democracy or whatever, which is what Ukraine is trying to do, well, you can't do anti-democratic things and expect us to not point it out. So there it is. Okay, next. There was quite a back and forth on CBS the other day. Um, The host here talked to the Chinese ambassador and pressed him pretty aggressively on what China's stance is regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So China and Russia, of course, have business relations. And um, when the U.S. started levying all these sanctions on Russia, China swooped in to some extent to save the day. They, oh, look, you're basically um, kicked out of SWIFT. Well, we'll give you access to our banking system, and a number of other things as well. So CBS host is clearly not having it, and the Chinese ambassador is trying to explain the official position of the government of China. Let's take a look, and then we'll react. But the White House is saying that you are in such a position of power here to pick up the phone and call Vladimir Putin. Has Xi Jinping, your president, told Vladimir Putin to stop the invasion? Do you condemn it? Actually, on the second day of uh, Russia's military operation. President Xi Jinping did talk to President Putin, uh, Was that their last asking thing? President Putin to think about resuming peace talks with Ukraine. And President Putin listened to it, and we have seen four rounds of peace talks uh, for, mm-hmm. you know, have happened. Let me continue. You know, China's trusted relations with Russia is not 
and liability. Actually, it's an asset in the international efforts to solve uh, the crisis in a peaceful way. You know? And China is part of the solution. It's not part of the problem. So if, if are you saying, though, just so we're clear, are you saying Beijing will not provide financial support to Moscow to well, prolong this war? China has normal trade, economic, financial, energy corporations with Russia. As I said just now. So it's not changing. You're not changing your relationship. This is a normal, normal business between our two sovereign countries you based on international order, uh, laws, including WTO rules. And Let's you know, talk about those international laws, because four days ago, the International Court of Justice ordered Russia to stop its military action. Mm -hmm. China abstained from that. The vote was 13 to 2. Mm -hmm. The only country that stood next to Russia was China. Well, that sounds like you are condoning and not condemning. China makes its observation and conclusion based independently, based on the merits of the measure itself. On the one hand, the United we oppose on the one hand, China opposes the uh, UN purposes and, uh, uh, and the principles, including that, the respect for the national sovereignty and the territorial integrity of all countries, including Ukraine. Okay. On the other hand, mm -hmm. we do see uh, the, there's a complicity in the history of uh, the, the Ukraine issue. And uh, we, we, we are in opinion. Russia amassed more than 150,000 troops at China's border. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why we want well, just to, be clear, to have a China, good, you would, good you would, friendly, good neighborly relations with Russia. But you would recognize what, that what is, good, friendly, neighborly relations with 150,000 troops on the border of a neighboring country and then to send those troops into that country. Yeah. In those circumstances, why can't you condemn this as an invasion? Mm -hmm. well, let's, don't be naive. Condemnation. It sounds naive to say that's not an invasion. It doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would be surprised if Russia will back down by contamination. What is well, urgently Will they back needed? down if your president is asks Vladimir Putin to back down? Will your yeah. president ask Vladimir Putin to back we down? We have done so. They will and we will continue to promote peace talks and you know, urge uh, immediate fire. And, uh, you know, condemnation you know, only doesn't help. We indeed. Wisdom. We need wisdom, we need courage, and we need good diplomacy. So that was a really interesting back and forth. Um, let's break this down. China is in an interesting position in this conflict because, on the one hand, uh, Russia is their ally. They do have business ties with Russia. Um, so they have an interest in making sure their relations with Russia are, are normalized. It, economically, it's something that they benefit from. So they want to maintain, uh, you know, a, a good relationship and a line of communication open with Russia. But then on the other hand, if China uh, doesn't condemn enough, and if China is not clear about them opposing the invasion of Ukraine, well, then they also sort of lose the international community. And of course, they have... Um, they have goals that are very expansive. I mean, this is what the Belt and Road Initiative effectively is. They're forming deep economic ties with all these different countries. And the idea is if we give you some sort of material benefit through building infrastructure, for example, then, uh, you know, we get some natural resources uh, 
support and help, but really extraction of natural resources from, from sovereign nations that further uh, solidifies their position as a global superpower. So they have a hard line to walk here because they need to cond- condemn or they lose the international community. Um, but they also can't condemn too hard because they don't want to uh, piss off Russia, their ally, uh, of which they have deep business ties to, because if Russia snuggles up to China, which they're already doing, then China grows its power and influence massively. So, and you could see they're struggling with how to walk that line. So let's go through some of what was said there. Has, has she told Russia to stop? That was one of the questions from the CBS host. And the ambassador says, yeah, he asked Putin to resume peace talks in Ukraine, and there's been four rounds of peace talks. Um, then he makes the argument, the ambassador does, that us being the ally of the, of the Russians is actually an asset. It's not a detriment. So in other words, if anybody's going to get some sort of resolution to this that is sane and reasonable, it's going to come from basically a friend of Russia, and it's not going to come from you know, finger-wagging and endless condemnation. Uh, which, by the way, there might be an element of truth in that, but it's also very convenient given the position that China finds themselves in. Um, then they ask, are you saying China won't provide a financial lifeline to Russia? And the fact of the matter is, they already have. Like, there is no, hey, maybe are you going to help them? They're already helping them. They've already reached out, provided them a lifeline. And by the way, if China didn't do that, we honestly would maybe be in a much worse situation because if you cut off the entire Russian economy from the global economy, you make it implode, you make it collapse. Well, if there isn't a lifeline there, Lord only knows what Vladimir Putin would do because he's erratic and he's got thousands and thousands of nukes. So on the one hand, again, it's very convenient for China to take that line. But then on the other hand, there is like a tiny grain of truth in it, which is like, you know, endless condemnation is not going to be the thing that brings this to any sort of resolution. Uh, Then the ambassador says China supports the territorial integrity of Ukraine. But he goes on to say, but there is complicity on this issue. So I think what he was getting at there, he didn't have the chance to finish the thought before he got cut off. But I think what he was trying to say there, he was trying to bring up NATO in the U.S. Basically like, look, we condemn this, but you guys maybe shouldn't have expanded NATO up to their border because you are sort of provoking that sort of a reaction. Now, again, there's an element of truth in that, but it certainly is not the whole truth. You know, I, previously I would have told you guys, yeah, this is all about NATO, but the more I've looked into it, the more I've read about it, and the more I've heard from Putin himself, it's obvious it's not just about NATO. The guy gave a long speech where half the speech was blood and soil stuff, which is like, you know, we feel entitled to Ukraine because it used to be ours and now it's not ours and we built them up and we supported them and then they turned their back on us and so we're going to take back what's rightfully ours. Just very flat imperial ambitions. That's what it is. And on top of that, we all know that Crimea, they found a tremendous amount of natural gas off the coast of Crimea in 2012. And oh, would you look at that? Vladimir Putin took it in 2014. Now we know there's also gas in the eastern portion of Ukraine and the western portion of Ukraine. And oh, would you look at that? Russia invaded all of Ukraine. And oh, would you look at that? They're also a petro state. So they want the natural gas. So that's a portion of it as well. But what China's trying to do here is say, hey, look, man, this is complex. What do you want me to tell you? This is, yeah, sure, what they did is wrong and they shouldn't have invaded Ukraine. But ah, does the West bear some responsibility for it? I think so. So they're trying to make that argument as well. Then you have, uh, why can't you condemn this as an invasion? That was the question. Now, I actually, I, I didn't know if they, I didn't know they didn't do that, to be honest. I thought that um, they did effectively call it an invasion, but it's possible that they just are walking that Russia state line of, oh, no, it's a special military operation. It's not an invasion. 
And that's, you know, rank propaganda coming from the Russian government of, you know, don't call our war a war because then it makes us look bad. <laughs> it's the same reason that they did the whole, like, we're accepting that these two regions in eastern Ukraine are independent states because then that gives them a veneer of international legality over their illegal actions. Because if they're just invading the sovereign nation, it's like, okay, that's a violation of international law. But they say, no, 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 they're independent states, and we have a military alliance with them, so actually we're being defensive by going in there. So you see what they're doing there. It's a trick. But look, he weaseled out of it. He could have said right there, we do condemn it, and it is an invasion. He could have said that. He didn't say that. He goes on to say, don't be naive. Condemnation won't work. Okay, again, there is a greater truth in that. But on the other hand, the, the greater truth here is it is an invasion. And it is a war. And you're not willing to say that even now? You could say all, everything you want to say about, hey, here are the, the factors involved in this conflict that have helped get us to this point, And some of these are inconvenient and the United States doesn't want to recognize. You can make all those arguments and those would be fair points. But what you can't do is pretend like this isn't an invasion and this isn't a war. There's most definitely an invasion and most definitely a war. But he tries to weasel out of it. He's like, look, don't be naive. Condemnation won't work. Um, and then finally you get the, will you ask him to back down? And China says, like, we have. We have asked them to back down. They didn't back down. So, again, what's the main takeaway here? The main takeaway here is what I led with, which is China's in, an, in a very unique position as a result of this. Because on the one hand, the conflict is good for them because this means Russia is sort of um, depleting itself and they need somebody to rely on they can rely on Beijing. If they rely on Beijing, China really spreads its sphere of influence more and more. The more Russia is relying on China, the more they become effectively like a vassal state of China. And so China likes that because that expands their sphere of influence and makes them more and more powerful. So on the one hand, they like this for that reason. But on the other hand, they can't go too far down that road because you lose any international legitimacy if you're too rah-rah the invasion. You're too open and honest about the fact that there are some benefits for you if Russia keeps going. Because if you want to be uh, effectively at some point the world's global superpower, sole superpower, um, just like the U.S. does, now we lie relentlessly on this front, but the idea is you have to have a veneer of respectability and, and a feigning of concern for <laughs> human rights and democracy and rule of law. And so on the one hand, you need to condemn because you have to keep the international community thinking you're an open and honest broker. But on the other hand, there are benefits for China specifically if Russia keeps going. And with Russia being kicked out of SWIFT and then turning to China for that, with uh, you know, economic relations that are definitely, if anything, going to deepen as a result of this, China looks at that and says, now we're being put more and more in the driver's seat here. Because Russia is depleting itself in, in the midst of this uh, conflict. And they got to turn somewhere, and we're the place that they turn. And so they're in an interesting position. They're trying to walk a fine line. But look, ultimately, don't get it twisted. It is, this, is, this is real politic. That's what this is. This is very you know, pragmatic, practical, zoom-out, uh, chess moves type stuff. So this is, there is no real concern, of course, from the Chinese government about you know, what about the Ukrainian civilians? What about the human rights situation? That's just, that's not what they're concerned about. That's not what they care about. In the same way that the U.S. is right now the world's global superpower, we never care about any of that stuff either, even though we lie about it and we try to put the veneer of respectability over it 
when it's uh, victims and, and refugees that are created by our meddling and our wars, um, we just sort of omit them from the national memory and act like we're still acting in favor of democracy and human rights and freedom, even as we armed Saudi Arabia and they committed genocide in Yemen. I don't know what you guys are talking about. As we starve Afghanistan by levying crippling sanctions on them, where now children and babies are in the hospital and you could see their ribs. I don't know what you're talking about. We're still fighting for human rights and freedom and justice. No, we're not. No, we're not. And by the same token, neither is China. They're looking at this in a very, in a way that is very beneficial to their own state interests. And what's interesting is when you see it laid out bare in such a way like this in an interview, it's, it's obvious, you know, it's obvious. So the most interesting lines there were him calling her naive and also um, he's not able to say, yes, this is an invasion, yes, this is a war, and uh, with no caveats, we condemn it. It's always trying to massage the point and trying to tap dance around it because the open secret is there are many ways in which the Chinese government um, benefits from what's happening in Ukraine right now. So there you have it. Oh, yeah, one more point. This is actually, I think, the most important point. Look at how aggressive the CBS host was against the Chinese ambassador there. Very aggressive, cut him off a number of times, demanded answers, followed up. And I look at that and I think that's wonderful. But for the love of God, do that with U.S. politicians. They don't. They never do it with U.S. politicians. If you have somebody on from, like, the State Department, or you have somebody from the Biden administration, or you have some U.S. politician, or you have some billionaire or whatever, they play footsie with them. They play patty cakes with them, you know, and, and they take what they say at face value. I mean, think about the way mainstream media in this country takes information given to them by the intelligence agencies, how they report that versus how they respond to the Chinese ambassador giving the, the Chinese state line. The Chinese state line, they have like a, a default skepticism over it, uh, but it's never worked like that with the U.S. government. They just accept everything at face value. And uh, what this shows you is it's not like they don't have the ability to be good at their job. They do. They just don't do it when it's the U.S., when it's holding our politicians accountable. And it's a real goddamn shame, man. I would be the biggest media, corporate media or mainstream media simp if every interview was this aggressive and you demanded answers in this kind of a fashion. But they never do that. They only do that with the official baddie states. So they're doing it with China. And again, it shows you they have the, the capability. They just don't do it when it comes to the U.S. And that's pathetic. So anyway, there you have it. Fascinating interview. And you get a little look inside the strategy of the Chinese government in terms of how to deal with this, the face they want to show to the world, and what their internal perspective really is. Okay. Next. Chuck Todd is the host of Meet the Press. Um, he's very, very bad at his job. He's very milk toast. He's a conventional wisdom spewing machine. And what you're going to see here is probably the single worst example of that. So he's talking to the head of NATO. And look at this question. This is really astonishing. 
Uh, we've seen an increased targeting of civilians, Mr. Secretary General, in, in Ukraine. And, and how long can NATO stand by and watch Russia target civilians without finding a way to help more uh, when it comes to the Ukrainian resistance? NATO allies are stepping up their support to Ukraine, uh, partly by delivering uh, military support, uh, uh, humanitarian support, and uh, billions of billions of uh, uh, support, uh, financial support to Ukraine. And then, of course, we also impose unprecedented sanctions on Russia uh, to ensure that they are paying, President Putin is paying a high price for this uh, totally unjustified, uh, senseless war against an independent sovereign nation, uh, Ukraine. And let me also remind you of the fact that NATO allies have actually uh, trained and supported the Ukrainian armed forces for years. Mm -hmm. trained, uh, trained tens of thousands of Ukrainian forces, special operation forces, command and control, logistics, and all of this proves extremely important now. These troops are, are on the front line fighting against uh, um, uh, the invading Russian uh, troops. Uh, so the support allies have provided over many years proves now to, be, to, have, to have been extremely important. So that answer was actually a great answer. It was very thorough. It was factual. But the question was, how long can NATO stand by without finding a way to help more? He didn't give a single specific. Chuck, how would NATO help more? They have already, and this isn't hyperbole, they've already maxed out on the ways in which they could help short of war. They've maxed out. So he goes through it. Look, unprecedented sanctions are trying to implode the entire Russian economy, which, by the way, I condemn that because now Russian civilians are being hurt. And Russian civilians, a lot, many of them are not even in favor of the war. They were protesting Putin in the street. But they say unprecedented sanctions, military support, humanitarian support. NATO has been training forces for years, by the, and that's true. The CIA has been training forces for years, including the Azov Battalion, by the way. That's the uncomfortable fact that, you know, is not often discussed nowadays, but it's true. Uh, and they've been providing logistics. If every sanction under the sun has been unleashed, if we're giving all the humanitarian support in the world and all the military support in the world and logistical support, etc., Chuck, what else is there to do? How else can uh, NATO, quote-unquote, help? Now, there's a reason he doesn't give any more specifics. He doesn't give any more specifics because if he did, it would be obvious what he's calling for is World War III. Again, this isn't hyperbolic. This is barely under, it's a millimeter under the surface. It's barely under the surface. So my guess is the implication in what he's saying there is, why are you not doing a no-fly zone? That's my guess. That's my guess. Because that's the thing that people who are unfamiliar with the specifics of this, they would say, well, I, that sounds surgical, and that sounds very above the fray, and that sounds like it's, it's not, you know, an act of war effectively. But it is an act of war. It absolutely is an act of war. And the polls have reflected this, too. A majority of people supported the idea of a no-fly zone if you just ask them, do you support a no-fly zone? Then when you actually explain what it is, that, hey, this is an act of war, all of a sudden support for it plummets. And it's way under 50%. So, but what Chuck Todd is doing here is he's implying, he's inferring, you've got to do more. Well, what is more? Is it direct NATO directly starting a war with Russia on the ground? Like NATO shooting at Russia? Is it the no-fly zone where NATO or the U.S shoot Russian planes out of the sky in Ukraine? What else is it, Chuck? What is it? What else do you want? He can't say anything, because if he does tell you the things that would be more help, 
it would be obvious what he's asking about is, why haven't you started World War III? It's just pathetic. It's just conventional wisdom spewing machine. I mean, what we've seen in this conflict, without any doubt, is that corporate media, every question they ask is pressure from the right, pressure from a more hawkish perspective. And we saw this the other day. I mean, we covered the video, and I'm sure many of you guys watched it, where uh, Jen Psaki was answering questions on Ukraine from the media, and virtually every single question, I mean, in the Super Cup, what was it? Seven, eight questions? They were all like, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing a no-fly zone? Why aren't you listening to Zelensky? Why aren't you helping more? And the only like, question that wasn't like that was Ryan Grimm's question. It was like the only one. It was the only one. So, guys, this is how you manufacture consent. This is how, if you repeat it over and over and over, and you're not specific as to what the stakes are if you do these things, well, then the, the perspective of the American people, anybody who's consuming this stuff on a regular basis, they're going to start to think, yeah, why aren't they doing more? Yeah, what's going on here? What's the problem? Why aren't you listening to Zelensky? Why aren't you helping? Why aren't you doing a no-fly zone? And so this is how you get a population to, you know, lean more in favor of a more bellicose response and, honestly, World War III. But, of course, my guess is if the U.S. government or NATO were to take actions that are akin to World War III and we're in World War III, all of a sudden the public would be like, what? What? why would you do that? Why would you do that? But, the, you know, the media is pushing everybody in that direction. And they're just so, so bad at their job. They're so bad at their job. And he's the worst, honestly, Chuck Todd. The whole show, he's never had an original thought in his life. He just always goes right to the conventional wisdom. He's not a deep thinker. You know, he thinks this is some sort of truth-telling, holding the powerful to account type question. And it's not. It's not at all. It's actually a dangerous line of questioning. So this is terrible, man. It's so bad. It's so bad. Honestly, NATO has done absolutely everything short of World War III. The U.S. has done everything short of World War III. And obviously that's a line you can't fucking cross in the nuclear age. You just can't do it. And again, my criticism is that, if anything, things have gone too far because now you're hurting Russian civilians with the sanctions. I have no problem whatsoever. In fact, I vehemently support the idea of sanctioning Putin, sanctioning the oligarchs, sanctioning the Russian military. I'm in favor of every sanction you can levy on that front. But all these sanctions that hurt regular people, it's just collective punishment. That's all it is. That's all it is. And it's this sense of hysteria and mania that's captured the country now where they think there's nothing we can do that's too tough if the people in question are Russian, even if they didn't do it. They didn't do anything wrong. So Chuck Todd, for the love of God, uh, step down from your position. He's, in, he's so in over his head, and it's so obvious. I mean, he's so bad at this. Not to say previous hosts of Meet the Press were wonderful. They weren't. But, I mean, he really is the worst of the worst. He really is the worst of the worst. And the casual underlying assumption in everything he's saying here is, why haven't we done World War III yet? I don't know, Chuck. Maybe because it's World War III and it is, it is uh, apocalypse in the real world. It's Armageddon. It's holy shit. People's fingers are a millimeter away from the big red buttons. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. Okay, next. All right, I got Bill Maher for you. 
So Bill Maher, on his show, uh, was asking questions about uh, Russia and Ukraine and the war that's ongoing. And uh, he said something that's getting quite a few headlines. So let me show you the article here. This is in Mediaite. Watch. Bill Maher asks, why didn't Putin invade Ukraine when his boyfriend Trump was in office? So I'm not going to show you the video because uh, HBO and Real Time are massive copyright sharks. But I will read you this. So Maher says, But I know you were watching our show last week, and you heard me say, why didn't Putin invade Ukraine when his boyfriend Trump was in office? I mean, Trump stood with him at Helsinki and defended him over our own intelligence agencies. So I was just asking the question, and maybe you do have an answer. Why not? When Trump was in office, it would seem to be the more logical place. So this guy Max Brooks responds, uh, not to be confused with the lovely Michael Brooks, who would never say something so stupid. No, he didn't invade because he didn't need to. Because you only roll out the tanks when you think you're out of options. And Putin had a great asymmetric strategy to dismantle NATO from within. I don't know why they spelled NATO like that. And it was working when the commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces called NATO obsolete. You are on the road to a fifth-column victory, and that's, and that's what he was doing. And it's a matter of fact, we know now in 2018, thank you. Maybe, well, we know this. In 2018, Trump wanted to pull out of NATO, and it was John Kelly and John Bolton who had told him who had to hold him down like a rabid dog to stop him from doing that. And if Trump had won a second term, he would have done it. But Biden being elected caused Putin's plans, plan to go up in smoke. So uh, right off the bat, I do not buy that for a second, this idea that Trump would have pulled out of NATO. He did say many NATO skeptical things, which, by the way, sort of based, but he never would have actually done it because, and we saw this on a number of different fronts, like with Afghanistan, for example. There were a number of times while he was president where he tweeted, we're moving out of Afghanistan, that's where we're going to do, it's going to be tremendous, it's going to be wonderful. And then some general would walk into the Oval Office and say, sir, we're not doing that. And he'd be like, you're right, no, we're not going to do that, that's not a good idea. So ultimately, whenever Trump got pressure from the intelligence agencies and the deep state and his own staffers, he would back down. He would back down. When he told, like, we can't do that and we're not going to do that, he would be like, okay, I guess we're not going to do that, that's fine. There, again, there was a time, I specifically remember when he tweeted, we are getting out of Afghanistan, And then he just didn't get out of Afghanistan. Eventually, they set some sort of date. They negotiated with the Taliban, and they set some sort of date, which was after Trump was already out of office. But he never actually did it. He never did it. And by the way, Biden actually followed through on that. It's one of the best things Biden done. But unfortunately, Biden ruined it with sanctions afterwards that are now starving millions of people in Afghanistan. So it's it's sort of like uh, the lowest bar of all time that you praise him for getting out if he's actually hurting civilians even more. Anyway, I digress from that point. Trump was a cuck to the deep state. All you needed was one person who was wearing an official military uniform to come in and say, sir, we're not doing that. And he'd be like, okay, no, you're right. I think you're right. I think that's a good point. And it happened time and time and time again. So he wasn't actually going to pull out of NATO. That's point number one. But point number two is this idea that, like, oh, Trump was Putin's boyfriend. I don't know why everybody overlooks what was actually happening in terms of the policy under Trump. So he didn't allow the Nord Stream 2 pipeline which is something Russia wanted massively, and so did Germany. But he said no to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He wouldn't allow it. Now, Biden came in and said, okay, sure. Now, to be clear, I was actually on Biden's side with that, because I don't think it's the U.S. place to tell to these foreign sovereign nations what kind of a a deal or relationship they want to set up. But Trump said no to that, which is the harsher position against Russia, and Biden said yes to that. Now, eventually that became a point of leverage 
uh, when Russia invaded, where now Biden was able to turn around and Germany was able to turn around and say, well, now we're not going to do the Nord Stream 2 pipeline because you're aggressive and you're invading your neighbor, which is good. So you had a point of leverage. If you allowed it and then you disallowed it when he invaded, you had a point of leverage, which was a good thing. But Trump said no to that. The other thing Trump did, which Obama refused to do, is arm Ukraine. He did that. Now, it also happens to be the case. Remember the, the perfect phone call that Trump made with uh, Zelensky, where Zelensky was basically asking, like, hey, where are our weapons? And Trump was like, well, maybe I'll only give them to you if you give me dirt on like, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. So he also, like, withheld some of the military support. But under Trump, before that, we had already given military support, and that's a policy that Obama didn't want to pursue because Obama viewed it as too aggressive and, you know, basically prodding Russia too much. But Trump armed not just Ukraine, but also a lot of those weapons did go to the Azov Battalion. Trump was arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine. That's what happened. Now, that is right for criticism. But nobody's making that criticism because they're too busy making this dumb criticism of, like, he's Putin's puppet. Well, if he's Putin's puppet, why were there endless, um, you know, NATO exercises right on Russia's border under Trump? If anything, he was too bellicose. He was too hawkish. He was continuing the, the same policies of many of the previous administrations. Obama was a little more dovish than Trump on this. But, you know, you go back, like, Putin invaded Georgia under George W. Bush. George W. Bush is a neocon hawk. George W. Bush, on paper, is a lot like Donald Trump, a, a Republican who is not all that bright. And so the idea that, like, well, he wouldn't do it under Trump, my guess is if Trump got a second term, Putin would have still done it. That's my guess. Now, we, uh, we don't know. We can't, you know break down some sort of alternate timeline, because it's just educated guesses when push comes to shove, and everybody knows that. But my guess is he would have done it under Trump if Trump got reelected. But, you know, Mark can't help himself. He always, he always goes back to the standard Russiagate arguments, and that's what this is, is a standard Russiagate ar- argument of, like, Trump is Putin's puppet. But it's also, it's also massively ironic, because, hold on, if Putin invaded Ukraine under Trump, that would have been called evidence of Trump being Putin's puppet. But when he doesn't invade it under Trump, they turn around and say, well, that shows you're Putin's puppet. You're his boyfriend. So then understand something. This is a hallmark of a conspiracy theory. It's a non-falsifiable claim. If Putin does it under Trump, that proves he's his puppet. If he doesn't do it under Trump, that proves he's his puppet. Well, maybe the whole dialogue is stupid and unnecessary, and instead we should be focusing on what actually is happening on the ground and what Trump actually did and what the results of it were. But nobody wants to have that conversation. So, again, my guess is um, if Trump got a second term, Vladimir Putin still would, would have done it. He probably still would have invaded. That's my guess. But certainly the claims of him being a Russian puppet or him being Putin's boyfriend, it's the liberal brainworms, man. There were so many salient criticisms to make of Donald Trump. Like, for example, stop arming neo-Nazis on on the issue of Ukraine. And nobody had time to make it because everybody was too busy saying he's Putin's butt buddy. So Bill Maher swinging and missing as per usual. His guest here swinging and missing as per usual. And um, their their analysis, I just think, is, is totally wrong. It's totally wrong. This idea that Trump actually would have pulled out of NATO there's no way he would have had the balls to do that. There's no way. I highly, highly, highly doubt that. So there you have it. Um, Bill Maher and Max Brooks having a stupid off on real time.
Okay. Next. Oh, boy, we got the Dave Rubin story. Jesus Christ. So Dave Rubin um, announced on his YouTube channel that he and his boyfriend, uh, David Janet, or his husband, David Janet, I should be clear, um, are going to have a kid, a kid or two kids. Uh, it's one or the other. Um, and, you know, he's excited about it, saying, you know, my life is changing forever, et cetera, et cetera. And he tried to explain the process to people uh, in a video he released. And, man, he received a gargantuan backlash. Now, uh, don't get me wrong, there were plenty of people who are, you know, prominent on the right who say, hey, congratulations, good for you, that's awesome. Uh, Megan Kelly comes to mind. I saw underneath Ruben's tweet, she was congratulating him. I also saw Prager U was congratulating him. Find that interesting, especially how conservative uh, Dennis Prager is. Seems like it's not his cup of tea. Um, but there was also a colossal gargantuan backlash among his audience and some other prominent right-wing figures. So we don't need to go through all of it, I'm sure, at this late date. This happened a few days ago. I'm sure you guys have seen a lot of the response, responses by now. But like Mark Dice, who's you know right-wing uh, commentator and conspiracy theorist, he was, he was all in on criticizing Dave Rubin and calling out other hosts on The Blaze who he was saying, like, look at you, you cucks, you're not, you're not condemning this just because he works at the same organization with you and you're friendly with him, but he's violating, like, this core conservative principle here, and how dare you? So Mark Dice went off. Uh, you had Milo Yiannopoulos posted something that was, like, disgusting. These people should be executed. Oh, Jesus Christ, dude. And then, by the way, Milo had uh, – Milo was on Dave Rubin's show. Milo was on Dave Rubin's show before, of course, the 1001 scandals, and et cetera, when he was effectively, you know – vanished from the public consciousness and deplatformed from everywhere in sight. Um, so Ruben goes out there, announces it, gets massive backlash. I was reading through on Twitter a lot of the just like random people on Twitter who were replying to it, and it was vicious, man. Some people were like, look, uh, kids need a mother and a father, period. I'm against this. There was a lot of that going on. There was this meme that was floating around of like, People comparing, you know, a gay couple having a kid to, like, enslavement and to buying a human being. Just nat IQ shit, but extreme social conservatism and authoritarianism. Just people ripping it to shreds. Now, many people would make the argument, hey, man, Dave Rubin made his bed and now he's going to sleep in it. Because he did. He cultivated this audience that is a very, very conservative audience. And so he may have thought, hey, the right has now come to totally accept gayness. Uh, but in reality, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's still a split. You know, there were some, like I said, who defended him. Okay, good for them. Fair enough. But there were so many who were like, this is sinful. This is wrong. You shouldn't be allowed to do it. It's basically enslavement. A child needs a mother and a father. You're depriving them of that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some people just had an issue with the whole idea of a surrogate. You know, some people made the argument, well, you should adopt if you're going to do anything. You shouldn't have a surrogate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
There were all types of criticisms coming from every which corner of the right. Now, um, Ruben, of course, sees the backlash. And, you know, my guess is he's like, God, I didn't, I didn't expect this. He, he might, maybe he expected a full, you know, everybody supporting him or 90% supporting him. It definitely was nowhere near that. I don't know what the actual numbers were, but roughly 50-50 or even like maybe 60-40 against what he was doing. So he goes on Glenn Beck's show on The Blaze, because again, he's a host on The Blaze, Glenn Beck's network. And uh, he really, really debases himself here trying to talk about the backlash and explain himself. And Glenn Beck is trying to get into like temper down, you know, emotions. But Glenn Beck says a lot of really condescending and patronizing things here. So let's take a look and then I'll react. I get why the right has these, what I would argue are often legitimate fears because the left does not stop eating civilization. Correct. And think about what an unfortunate position that puts us in. Because then someone like me can make an announcement like this, then good, decent, thoughtful, conservative, some of faith, maybe some of some not of faith, whatever it is, could reach out and say, boy, this, this is what an interesting opportunity, and sure, it's a little different, and, and whatever, all, all the love that, that you and the Blaze guys and everyone else are giving me. And then, and then there's this other part that's legit, which is, uh-oh, if we move the line, they're going to keep going. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. I honestly don't, because that has nothing to do with me and how I'm going to live my life. I think, and this is why I wanted to have you on, because I don't have an answer. I am, you know me, I'm a deeply religious man, and my religion says man and a woman, uh, that is the basic building block of family. We are so, we're probably the clearest church on this, because it's been in our, in our doctrine for 200 years. So we're very clear on that. But that's marriage and relationships, and that's what I believe, but I also and I also, I also know God created you, just like he created me, flaws and all. Uh, you know, um, I believe I have a gene, they've never found it, that makes me very susceptible to alcoholism because it runs in my family. So it's craziness, but it runs in my family. The same thing with things that I don't understand. And if we can't have a conversation about things that we don't necessarily understand and probably won't until we get to the other side, we have to just work it out together and be able to say, Dave, I, 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 I disagree or I don't know um, what the answer is, but I love you. Ooh, wow. That was very, very sad. Um, so let's go through this. Ruben makes the argument, I guess what, I, I guess, I, I get why the right has legitimate, legitimate, he says, uses the word legitimate, legitimate fears, because the left does not stop eating civilization. This is quite a time to go after the left, when the left is across the board uh, correct on this and supportive of these, you know, babies having a loving family. You know, n- nobody on the left that I've seen is in principle against uh, gay marriage and certainly 
the, you guys having kids. Everybody's okay with that. Everybody's supportive of that. So it's a weird time to say, well, the, the right has legitimate fears because the left does not stop eating civilization. So what's the argument? He's trying to say, like, well, if we move the line to allow what I'm doing here, well, who knows where they're going to move the line next. And uh, what I would press him on is, okay, so what are you afraid of? Please go on. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of, like, a trans couple being able to raise kids, and is that something you would oppose? Uh, are you saying it's okay when my, uh, you know, in my marriage we have kids, but other gays who are, who are leftists, that shouldn't be allowed when they do it? What's the argument? What's the argument? Are you trying to compare you guys raising uh, kids with, I don't know, man-horse marriage? Because this is the old argument. Oh, the line's moving, the line's moving, and the line's never going to stop. So, okay, but what are, you, what are you saying is coming next? And is that thing actually bad? Like, what are we talking about here? And is the line actually going to move to the place where you're pretending it's going to move to? But again, he uses the, words, the word legitimate. I guess why the right has legitimate fears. Dave, I hate to break it to you, but what the, a lot of these people who are coming after you on this front, their fears are not legitimate at all. In fact, I've seen a study uh, which says that um, it is kids do really well if they have gay parents, that they thrive, that there is no downside to having two parents of the same sex. Now, I'm sure Dave Rubin knows this. I'm sure he's seen that study. Why are you not making that point? Why are you not making that argument? He's, he's like tap dancing around it and trying to be gentle with his response here. Why are you being gentle? Why can't you just say, hey, guys, I'm right. What I'm doing is okay, and you are wrong. There's a time for straight talk. There's also a time for making a, a soft argument, right? This isn't that time. You have people who are just wrong about this. Why can't you just say, you are wrong about this? Uh, then he says, look, I make this announcement in good, decent conservatives. Um, you know, many of them like it, but then a lot of them say, hey, if we move the line, they're going to keep. And again, I would say, where's that line going? Why do you think that's necessarily bad? Um, why are you soft pedaling this? Make an argument for what you're doing here. This is your life. And people are saying, we don't like what you're doing, or we hate you as a result of it. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe let's have an open conversation about this, please. Uh, and then Glenn Beck, oh, my God, he tries to come in to pour water over the fire, but he ends up pouring gasoline on it. He goes, my religion is the clearest on this. He's a Mormon. He goes, my religion says man, woman. Then he says, but that's marriage and relationships. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. So I thought at first he was going to say, that's just marriage, but I'm okay with civil unions. I'm okay with you getting all the benefits legally of marriage without calling it marriage. I thought he was going to go in that direction. He didn't. He said, look, my religion says man, woman, but that's just marriage and relationships. So now even gay relationships are off the table? Even that's something that you say is bad? And then he drops, he drops the bomb on everybody. He says, I know God created you like he created me, flaws and all. So, like, for example, I think I have a gene that makes me susceptible to alcoholism and craziness. Oh, God. Homeboy is comparing homosexuality to alcoholism and craziness. So, in other words, his point is, you are defective. You are a defective person. You have these traits, which are bad traits, which are not good, which are detrimental, which everybody should oppose. Nobody's pro-alcoholism and pro-craziness. So he's sort of making the argument like, really, nobody should be pro-gay. You're sinning. You should admit it's a sin. 
and maybe I accept that you're a sinner, but it is a sin. That's the point that he's making, that Reuben is defective because of his sexuality, which is exactly the kind of bigotry that just typified what the right was all those years where they were openly against gay marriage, openly against it. And now, apparently, it's still either half or majority that's against it, but they're just, ironically, in the closet about those feelings because we already have gay marriage and the gay rights movement has made giant gains. So now they've got to sort of hide it a little bit that these are the things that they really believe. But the second they were given an opportunity, boom, all that latent bigotry comes screaming out, comes roaring out. Um, and then my favorite is at the end, Gwen Beck makes the argument, look, man, like, yeah, you're sinning. Yeah, what you're doing is wrong. But I also love you as a person, so we have to have a conversation about this stuff and work it out. I love this because this is it's almost a parody of the idea that, bro, I'm in favor of open dialogue and discourse, bro. Like, I'm just open-minded. I just want to have conversations, bro. Which, on the one hand, look, that's absolutely a good thing in most areas and on most issues when you're discussing most policies. But every now and then, there's an issue where people who are correct need to look at the ones who are wrong and say, you're fucking wrong about this. Because, okay, here's a great analogy. What if we were having a conversation right now about uh, interracial marriage? What if that was the conversation? And, and Glenn Beck took the same line. Look, man, it's sinful. Interracial marriage is sinful. It's wrong. It's bad. You're defective if you want to do it, but if I happen to like you as a person, we just got to have conversations and work it out. Everybody would look at that and say, that is the dumbest, that's bigotry that you're barely putting a happy face over. That's what it is. Everybody would say, oh, you're against interracial marriage, you're against miscegenation? That's just bigotry. doesn't matter how nice you are about it or how much you try to, you know, get the rough edges off of it. It's that. But this is an area where they're equally wrong, and they're just soft-pedaling it, and they're dancing around it. And by the way, I read the replies to Glenn Beck's tweet, and his own audience isn't buying it. People were unsubscribing from the blaze and saying, this guy isn't really religious. This guy doesn't believe, uh, you know, isn't a conservative. Because no conservative could be okay with this. No conservative is okay with, you know, a gay married couple raising kids having kids. See, look, again, this is the most important point. The open-minded conversations, the the free exchange of ideas and all that stuff on most issues, in most areas, it makes perfect sense. You want to have that back and forth. You want to have that dialogue. You want to work something out, of course. But every now and then, you want to stare down the mob and say, you're fucking wrong. You're fucking wrong and you're being silly. You're being ridiculous. You know, if somebody casually floats the idea of, Maybe we drop nukes on a bunch of civilians right now. You don't go, well, we need to have conversations and work it out, and then maybe we can come to some sort of glorious agreement and maybe find some middle path. No, you go, that's fucking crazy. That's fucking wrong. If somebody says, I'm pro-Al-Qaeda, you go, you're a fucking psycho, and you're wrong. By the same token, if somebody says, I'm against gay marriage, or I'm against a gay married couple having children, you don't say well, you have some legitimate fears because the left is really bad and they don't stop eating civilization. You say, you're fucking wrong, and here's why you're wrong. Here's the study about 
gay parents raising kids in a way that is very fruitful and successful and the kids are happy and well-adjusted, here's, uh, here's another argument for you. Fuck off, get out of my life. What about personal freedom and individual choice? What about that? What about that? I can't have personal freedom. I can't have individual choice because your opinion of my lifestyle and my being is that I'm defective or it's akin to alcoholism or craziness. He doesn't have it in him because he cultivated this audience of pretty far-right people. And now he doesn't have it in him, probably because he fears the subscriber loss or the view count drop or whatever. He doesn't have it in him to say, you're fucking wrong. Here's why you're wrong and let me explain it. Now, look, if he were to do that, he probably would lose subscribers. He probably would lose viewers. But he'd also be able to fucking sleep at night and put his head down on the pillow and say, you know what? I told everybody what I really think for once. You know? And I know being in this position as a host that, sure, 95% of the time I'm saying stuff and most of you guys like it, right? But every now and then there's 5% of the time I'm going to say something I know that most of my audience disagrees with. But you got to fucking say it. You have to say it. Because you have to be true to yourself. You have to be honest. You have to be authentic. And that's the only way in the long run that anything ever works in, you know, the media business. If you're some sort of public figure who has takes on politics stuff. The only way it's going to work is if you're always being honest, always being authentic, always being true to yourself. Even if every now and then you have to say something that 90% of your audience is like, I don't agree. Okay, too bad. Now I'm going to tell you why I think I'm right on it. Like I said, most areas, it's okay to have that dialogue, that free expression, that exchange of ideas, etc. But every now and then, it's time to puff your chest out and say, you're fucking wrong and you're way wrong and it's pathetic how wrong you are right now. But he doesn't have it in him. He doesn't have it in him. So he debases himself and uh, makes an ass of himself, and, you know, Glenn Beck trying to split the difference. Oh, it's like alcoholism, and it's like craziness, and you're defective, and it's sinful, but I like you as a person, so we just have to have conversations. Here's how that conversation should go. I am a free adult person. I get to choose what I want to do, and it's going to work out well, as the studies show, (laughs) that gay married people uh, have very successful and happy kids, and you can fuck right off if you disagree. That's the way the conversation should go. He doesn't have it in him. He doesn't have it in him. I, when I was first watching The Backlash, I did feel bad for him. I think Dave Rubin is a very flawed person in the sense that he, um, he's doing it all for the clicks and the notoriety and the fame. He, doesn't, he never really was cared too much or thought too deeply about politics. Um, but... I did feel bad for him watching this backlash because here he is telling everybody exactly, you know, what's going on in his life. And I think he's actually excited about it. And um, half or most of his audience is like, this is bad. And I disagree with it. So he shows his true self for once and he gets slapped down. But, you know, the how I felt bad for him. But now I find it hard to feel bad for him, namely because he didn't have it in him to respond to this in an authentic way. You had an opportunity here to come out and be authentic. And to, if you really believe in his kind of conservatism, he fancies himself more of like a libertarian type conservative. Okay, well, you're going to make a libertarian type conservative argument. Could have puffed your chest out. You could have told everybody what the deal is. You could have told your haters to suck your balls, but you didn't do it. But you didn't do it. So now, you know, my well of sympathy is running dry. But in all seriousness, maybe that well of sympathy should have never had a drop of liquid in it for one Dave Rubin. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, I got Hunter Biden. 
I got uh, Hannity, and um, I got Bloomberg with one of the most out-of-touch articles I've ever seen in my entire life. Stay right there.
right, we are back, everybody. We are back. We are back. All right, let's talk about Hunter Biden. So the New York Times released an article talking about a couple of investigations that are currently ongoing with Hunter Biden. One of them is about um, him not paying his taxes. Now, he didn't pay his taxes for a while, but then eventually he did pay it after it was clear that, you know, the, uh, the government was looking into the fact they didn't pay his taxes. So that's one aspect of the story. And then the other aspect of the story is Hunter Biden refusing to register as a foreign agent, even though he was effectively acting as a foreign agent with all these international business dealings that he has. Now, in, in the process of writing this story, uh, there was an admission from the New York Times that, indeed, the Hunter Biden laptop, which is a story that came out and broke uh, right before the election of, of 2020, they verified and confirmed that the laptop is indeed his and the stuff that came out of there is indeed real. Now, why does this matter? Well, this matters because at the time, at the time, uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, they, they banned the story. I think it was the New York Post that um, originally got their hands on it. And then also I think the Daily Mail uh, had their hands on it at some point. And so these stories were coming out right before the election and social media just banned the story. And they made the argument, hey, this is, uh, this is unverified. And this is, some made the argument, it's Russian disinformation. And so they didn't allow anybody to share on social media. You couldn't even DM it to somebody else. So that is, it's astonishing how far the crackdown has gone and how authoritarian that is, where you're basically banning the free flow of information in a way that could clearly impact the outcome of the presidential election. I will say, uh, even though in theory it can impact the outcome of the election, I don't think, even if they allowed this story to stay up, I really don't think it would have changed the outcome of the election. I don't. Um, I really think it was an election more about um, COVID and it was about returning to normal. And so Biden, I think, would have pulled it out either way. But look, that's irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, as a matter of principle, they should have let the story stay up. Now, there are aspects of the Hunter Biden story that I think are, are useless. Uh, like, for example, everything about his personal life, everything about his drug addiction, everything about the sex, all the shirtless pictures of him, et cetera, et cetera. I know that that's salacious and that's what gets the clicks. But it is also... Uh, a wanton violation of privacy for somebody who's not a politician, not a, a, a public figure in the sense that he impacts policy for the country. So running those stories, I think, is ethically questionable. If I was at the New York Post or Daily Mail or anywhere, I don't think I would have put that stuff out there. But, but there is an aspect of the story that's real as a heart attack. And that aspect is, the financial corruption that we learned about as a result of the laptop, because that does affect policy, that does directly implicate politicians. So that stuff should have been allowed to run, of course, of course. So let me give you some of the specifics here. Let me throw that first article up on screen. The New York Times quietly deleted, this is in Yahoo, the New York Times quietly deleted its assertion that an October article from the New York Post about the business dealings of Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was unsubstantiated in the reworked report the outlet reported on a Federal Election Commission decision that dismissed a Republican complaint arguing Twitter violated election laws by blocking users from sharing the story during the heat of the 2020 election. When New York Times posted the report early Monday afternoon, it read, quote, the Federal Election Commission has dismissed Republican accusations that Twitter violated election laws 
in October by blocking people from posting links to an unsubstantiated New York Post article about Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s son, Hunter Biden. A tweet from the outlet's main account, which started trending on Twitter, similarly called the New York Post article an unsubstantiated article, New York, New York Times national political reporter Shane Goldmacher, who wrote the initial draft, similarly called it unsubstantiated. So what happened is, and they go on in the Yahoo piece to explain this, after it was indeed verified by the New York Times, it was confirmed that this laptop is real, the stuff in it is real, which again, they're months late, but they did it. They admitted it. A bunch of old tweets from New York Times and others resurfaced on Twitter. People were retweeting it and going after them because they were saying it's unsubstantiated, it's not verified, it's Russian disinformation, it's this, it's that. So what they did is they went back and, and I think they deleted some stuff, but they also went into the articles and changed around the wording without like, letting people know that's what they were doing. So if people go back and click on the article, they changed it and cleaned it up to more reflect reality. And again, they did it without an editor's note or anything. Okay, that super ethically questionable. They're just trying to cover their ass here. But everybody, it's like the Streisand effect. Now everybody knows that you're doing it because you're calling more attention to it by not being open and upfront about it. And it's not, it's not good. It's not good. So um, let me show you the next graphic here. See, this is in the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail also verified the laptop's authenticity at the time. And here were some of the stories that came out of it. This is what they covered. Joe Biden entertained Hunter's Mexican billionaire business associates in the vice president's office in 2014 and even flew with his son to Mexico City on Air Force Two so Hunter could attend meetings over a flippin' gigantic deal. That's one. Emails contradicting White House denials show that Joe Biden met with Hunter's foreign business partners while he was VP during a dinner organized by his son to introduce potential clients to his powerful father. That's another one. Hunter Biden was hired by a Romanian real estate tycoon to overturn his bribery conviction through a massive propaganda campaign with help from VP Joe's government connections and former FBI director, Louis Free. That's another one. Louis Free gave $100,000 to a private trust for Joe's grandchildren and spoke with the then vice president in 2016 to explore lucrative future work options with Hunter as the middleman. That's another one. Hunter's close relationship with Blue Star Consulting Firm under federal investigation for its involvement with controversial Ukrainian gas company, Burisma. Remember, he got paid to be on a Ukrainian gas company. Another one, Hunter was deeply involved with a firm at the center of a scheme to defraud Native Americans for millions of dollars despite later distancing himself. How Hunter and his father paid each other's bills and even shared bank accounts, raising the prospect of the president being embroiled in the FBI probe. How Hunter repeatedly dodged police action against him, despite constantly dealing with drug pushers and prostitutes and having multiple run-ins with law enforcement. And then finally, five members of the Biden family have been to rehab for drug or alcohol abuse. So, okay, let's go through this. So the drug and alcohol one, look, I don't, I don't think the New York Post or the Daily Mail or anybody should have run stories on the drug and alcohol abuse. Anything that's on the personal side that came out of that laptop, anything about drug addiction or sex or personal struggles, uh, to me that crosses a line because, again, Hunter's the son of the president. So he's not, that's not in the public interest to know about his personal life. Everybody knows based on previous reporting and things that are open that he's a giant piece of shit. Like the guy, like his brother died and then he slept with his brother's former ex-wife and then also ended up sleeping with her sister. Like we get it, we get it, we get it. The guy is very questionable ethically and morally. I got it. Um, but this stuff is not in the public interest. And if anything, you give your opponents and your enemies an argument of, well, you're violating his privacy, so now we have a right to pull down your articles and not allow people to share them. 
You're giving them an argument where there shouldn't be an argument. So if I had my hands on a laptop and I was an editor of some big publication, I would say, just all the personal stuff, just get it out, get it out, get it out. Don't show the pictures. Don't talk about the sex. Don't talk about the rehab. Don't talk, like, that's just not, it's not relevant. It's not pertinent. It's salacious, but people don't have a right to know that. And I'm sure Hunter was like, I want people knowing that shit. And so somebody gets in his laptop, even though he made a stupid mistake by leaving it there, you know, he should have the veto power on that. I don't want you showing that. But with everything involving the corruption, there is no argument for not running that. And there certainly is no argument for, you know, having the social media companies ban it right before an election. That's just election engineering. And that's also authoritarian censorship. There's no two ways about it. Now, I should also note, because this is super important, some of those stories about the corruption, Joe Biden actually didn't end up following through on any of the things that were like potential deals that Hunter was trying to set up. So on the ones that Joe Biden didn't do anything, he's not guilty because he didn't follow through on any sort of a deal. He didn't make any sort of a deal where somebody's getting favors because Hunter brought this to Joe Biden's attention. And so now Biden is using the power of the government to deliver that like that didn't happen with a lot of those uh, headlines and a lot of those stories that they were going through. So on that point, you got to say Hunter is attempting to be massively corrupt. Hunter you know, wants to use his dad's power and influence for personal gain. But if Joe didn't deliver, then Hunter is just the fail son who's trying to get his dad to be more unethical, and Joe is not complying with that. Now, having said that, I'm sure. And you'd have to go through each story with a fine-tooth comb and, and, you know, figure out all the details, and this would have to be proven. But if indeed there were some deals that went through that were questionable ethically, then that is condemnable. And maybe there are actual legit crimes there, crimes of bribery and corruption. I mean, look, don't get it twisted. The whole Burisma story is insane. Hunter Biden taking gargantuan amounts of money to sit on a Ukrainian, in, on a Ukrainian natural gas company's board when he doesn't know anything about natural gas and he doesn't even speak the fucking language. Like, what's that about? That is trying to buy favor in the American government. That is what that is. Don't, don't get it twisted. And that needs to be criticized. That needs to be condemned. And you can't just... Swap that all aside and say, that's all a right-wing conspiracy theory. Really? All of the emails, all the dirt that came out of this. I agree with you, the personal stuff shouldn't have been printed. And I agree that probably a number of the things that they're saying, oh, this is a corrupt deal. If Biden didn't do anything on the front and he basically told his idiot son, I'm not going to do this, fuck off, then Biden's vindicated on that. But if there's some stuff, and there is with Burisma, et cetera, where there are corrupt dealings going on, well, of course that's in the public interest. Of course the public should know. And of course there should be accountability here. This, honestly, what this reminds me a lot of is, um, number one, the Clinton Foundation and how, you know, the Clinton Foundation was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars and or millions of dollars from various governments that are authoritarian, repressive, theocratic, etc. And then they would deliver, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, would then turn around and deliver a weapons deal to these people after they just gave, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to Bill through the Clinton Global Initiative. Okay, well, that's rank corruption, and it's open, and it's obvious for everybody to see. And people on the Democratic side would try to swap that aside and say, no, that, that, that doesn't count for reasons X, Y, and Z, because something, something, philanthropy, charity, fuck off. No, that does count, and that's not acceptable, and that's not allowed, and that shouldn't be allowed. It also reminds me of, you know, uh, everything that went on with Trump's businesses. Oh, I put my stuff in a blind trust. First of all, no, he didn't. Second of all, even if he did, that's not enough to guarantee, like, there's not going to be any corruption. Third of all, we already know Trump took over $300,000 from the Saudi Arabian government through his hotel in D.C. And then he turned around and delivered on a multi-billion dollar weapons deal for Saudi Arabia. And that's just one example. The examples are endless of 
you know, you do some business deal with me, and then we return the favor using the power of the federal government. Like, so in other words, the point I'm trying to make here is virtually every single, um, you know, prominent politician with disposition of power and the president, their families are, are entangled in some very questionable things, and they're using their power and influence in nefarious ways. And it's got a clean house, man. We need strong anti-corruption laws that are actually enforceable. The bar of, like, there needs to be a quid pro quo is too high of a bar because nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says, if I give you this, will you do that for me? That's a quid pro quo. Everything's sort of under the table, and it's a wink and a nod. And so you can't really crack down on any of this stuff unless you, uh, you know, change the law in that respect and have stronger anti-corruption laws and anti-bribery laws. And this, the idea of the revolving door is, is a catastrophe. The idea that the family members of politicians can do things like this and get away with it is insane. And the main point that I want to stress yet again for everybody is this is not a partisan thing. It's not. Because some people will listen to this and say, see, the Bidens are corrupt and, and end the conversation there. It's like, actually, no, the Biden, Bidens are corrupt. The Trumps are corrupt. The Clintons were corrupt. Uh, the Obama corruption was slightly different in, in its nature because there wasn't Obviously, Malia and Sasha were not going around and, and making corrupt deals, but his was more the typical accepted Washington corruption of campaign contributions than I deliver for you because you guys paid me, having Citigroup appoint, like, basically his entire cabinet. So, like, the corruption is thick, it's deep, it's horrendous, and it needs to be stopped. And, unfortunately, instead of the media fighting on the side of the people and exposing this stuff, and holding people accountable and giving them context and perspective and facts and information, what does the media do? The media tried to bury this story. Social media banned it. And then, by the way, there was another story. New York Post reached out to a lot of the uh, U.S. intelligence officials who, when this story came out, there were a number of U.S. intelligence officials who were like, that has the hallmark of Russian disinformation. Fake news, Russian disinformation. And they reached out to them and said, look, the New York Times verified it. They confirmed it. So are you going to apologize? Would you like to revise anything you said? And basically all of them were like, <laughs> so you have the intelligence agencies, the government, the corporate media, and everybody under the sun, social media, everybody's trying to hide the reality from you and pretend like, oh, everything's serious and on the up and up and your government's not totally corrupt. Wrong. They are. And that is definitely something that not only we need to talk about, what we need to fix, and it would be nice if we had some of the institutions on our side, again, like the media. Okay, next. So Sean Hannity um, did a you know, segment on Russia's war in Ukraine. And he said something here that I, I couldn't believe. I know Hannity is, like, legendary for being dumb and doing the standard Republican talking points. But this goes above and beyond even for Sean Hannity. So look at what he cites here as a policy success and what he's arguing should happen in Ukraine as a result of it. Take a look. I go back to Ronald Reagan. He provided, for example, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan.
Afghanistan, the Stinger missiles, well, that helped Afghanistan defeat the former Soviet Union in the 1980s. Reagan made that happen. Reagan also provided weaponry to the freedom fighters, the Contra rebels in Nicaragua, to battle Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas. He was successful there. Reagan never put a single American boot on the ground. These weapons helped these... He was citing the arming of the Mujahideen and the Contras as a success story. Now, um, let me come back to that in a second. That's the meat of the story, but hold just one second. Look at that last point also where he's like, Reagan never even put a boot on the ground. Isn't that great? Sean, I remember very clearly under the Bush administration, you were one of the ones screaming at the top of your lungs for more boots on the ground in Iraq, in Afghanistan, basically anywhere that you threw a fucking dart on a map, anywhere it landed, more boots, more boots on the ground, more war, we need to do it right now. So wait, 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 wait. Are boots on the ground good or bad? Well, now you're saying it's bad because the consensus is that's World War III. Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm actually glad about that, unironically, that he doesn't want the boots on the ground. But he acts like he was always, this was always my position. Okay, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, but it's amazing just how, because it's classic Sean Hannity. He'll say one thing under one administration, another under another administration, and he just acts like it's impossible to go back and check the record and see if he's consistent. So he was... He loves boots on the ground. He loves boots on the ground. Now, so, no, 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 boots on the ground, not that good. Okay, that, that's the point I want to get out of the way. Now, he, he's arguing when we armed the Mujahideen, it was a phenomenal success because we beat back the Soviet Union and Afghanistan. The Mujahideen, Al-Qaeda came out of the Mujahideen. We armed Osama bin Laden. We armed radical jihadists who wanted to do world domination and set up a global caliphate. It was as a direct result of that, we eventually got 9-11. We armed the people who became nominally our main enemies in the war on terror. To cite arming the Mujahideen as a success story is astonishing. That's everybody with a functioning brain in today's day and age looks at that as the, the main policy failure. Like, it's one of the first ones you go to. Remember that picture of, like, um, Mujahideen fighters in the White House with Ronald Reagan. It's a very famous picture. Now we all look at that like, look how fucking crazy we are. Look at what we do. We just arm anybody and everyone. We have a arms and weapons industry, defense contractors. They're out of control. All these business dealings, there's all these authoritarian dictators, these murderous thugs. We arm, you know, rebel groups. For, these are moderate rebels. Mm, that's what we said in Syria, too, is we were arming al-Nusra, which is a branch of al-Qaeda on the ground in Syria. These are moderate rebels. You know, moderate rebels, you mean? They're a bunch of school teachers who you just armed and gave weapons to? Nonsense, moderate rebels. And now, now it's come full circle. Wasn't it great when we armed the Mujahideen? Don't you love arming jihadists? Isn't that awesome? Ask the families of the 9-11 victims if that's awesome. Ask them. Ask people who've been beheaded by them if that's awesome. As, by the way, some of the people we armed in Syria did to uh, civilians in in Syria. We covered that story. They beheaded somebody. Unbelievable. But it, it, he goes even further. He, ha, he can't help himself. He goes even further. Arming the Mujahideen was good. What a great success from Ronald Reagan. And then he also says arming the Contras was good. Arming the Contras. Guys, so Human Rights Watch um, has detailed records of what went down when we armed the Contras. Far-right paramilitaries. They targeted healthcare clinics and healthcare workers for assassination. 
They kidnapped civilians. They tortured civilians. They executed civilians, including children. Again, this is directly from Human Rights Watch. They raped women. They indiscriminately attacked civilians and civilian houses. They seized civilian property. And they burned civilian houses in captured towns. He's citing arming them as a policy success. Why? Because, oh, they're fighting the commies, so that's good. See, in, in Sean Hannity's mind, he genuinely still thinks like Vladimir Putin is a communist. He's trying to spread communism. So he's still thinking Cold War style of like literally anything and everything we could do to defeat communism is great. So prop up jihadists? Awesome. Prop up uh, fascist right-wing paramilitaries who murder civilians and rape women? Awesome, because you've got to beat the commies. That's what he's thinking. Brainworms, dog. He's got brainworms through and through. I cannot believe. I cannot believe. We've now come full circle to arming the Mujahideen is based. And arming uh, contra paramilitary death squads is great. But that's where we are. That's where we are. So, by the way, now, I told you, how does this relate to Ukraine in today's day and age? Because this is really important. Now, every reasonable person, you know, who I've seen brings up, Look, Ukraine is being invaded by Russia. Russia is doing an aggressive imperialist invasion. I think a lot of why Russia is doing it, by the way, is because Putin wants that natural gas in Russia. Natural gas was found just off the coast of Crimea in 2012. And then would you look at that in 2014, they took Crimea. That definitely has something to do with it. In the same way the Iraq war was in part about oil, I think what uh, Putin's doing in Ukraine is about natural gas. I think it has a lot to do. It was also found in the eastern portion of the country and the western portion of the country. Big states, big powerful states do fucked up things, and it's not just the U.S. Because a lot of, there's some people out there who, they have one point, and it always comes back to America bad. That's not, if you really think that's an intellectually satisfying, accurate answer, I have bad news for you. It's not even close to that. So I think that has something to do with it. But, so arming Ukraine for defensive reasons, yes, perfectly reasonable. I get it. It makes sense. They have a right to defend their own sovereign country. I'm all for it. But the problem becomes when you indiscriminately arm them and you just throw hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons at them and there are no strings attached. Because what ends up happening? Well, the Azov Battalion is part of the Ukrainian National Guard. The Azov Battalion, now granted, it's only, what, about 3,000 people deep, but at least 20% of them are card-carrying neo-Nazis. And my guess is it's actually way more than that. My guess is there are plenty of far-right forces in Ukraine who are... Nazis are Nazi-aligned, and of course we don't have any strings attached to when we arm Ukraine. So some of the most experienced fighters on the front lines are going to get those weapons, including the Azov Battalion, neo-Nazis. So we are arming neo-Nazis. And again, Hannity's out here going, isn't that so based? I love arming um, fascist paramilitaries. I love arming uh, jihadists and al-Qaeda, and I love arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Well, how can this come back to bite us in the ass? Now, of course, I don't think there's going to be like neo-Nazi terror attacks where they fly planes into the towers or something. No. But what can happen, and the more we give arms, the more likely this is to happen, is as soon as there's some sort of, after people, you know, the fighting goes on for an extended period of time, at some point the appetite for the fight goes away, and you will have Putin and Zelensky sit down and try to work out some sort of a deal. And my guess is any kind of deal is going to include perhaps um, Donetsk and Luhansk being either independent states or being absorbed by Russia. I think any kind of potential deal is probably going to include that, okay? 
So if Zelensky agreed to that, to stop the war, well, then you could have forces to his right in Ukraine view him as a Russian puppet sellout. And then the situation is ripe for Zelensky to be overthrown violently by some sort of neo-Nazi paramilitary who then fills the vacuum in Ukraine and runs the government and now runs the country. And the more you indiscriminately send weapons into, in there and they get the weaponry, the more likely that is to happen. So look, we don't know for sure. Things have got to play out. We need to see if and when some sort of peace deal is reached and everything would have to fall into place. But just understand the scenario I described is not you know, some sort of crazy pie in the sky thing that's definitely not going to happen. It's definitely in the realm of possibility. So the fact of the matter is, you should not indiscriminately arm the Mujahideen, the Contras, or Ukraine, because a lot of neo-Nazi elements are in there. And you want to make sure they don't get the weaponry. Again, I have no problem arming them as long as it doesn't go to, to those terrible forces, but we don't have any strings attached. There is no purging them out of the National Guard. There is no guaranteeing through some sort of verification process that the weapons don't go there. And he's cheering it on. Sean Hannity is cheering on the arming of some of the worst elements in the world, because that's what he does. All right, next. So Bloomberg News, and actually, to be fair, this is in the opinion section of Bloomberg, uh, they ran an article that is probably one of the single most out-of-touch things I've ever seen. Let me show you the headline, and then I'll show you the tweet, which gives the summation. So they say, inflation stings most if you earn less than $300,000. Here's how to deal. More Americans than ever expect their finances to worsen as inflation hits a 40-year high. Do you really need that extra car? So it's from Teresa Gillarducci. Gillarducci. Um, now let me show you the summation that is in this tweet here. This is, again, Bloomberg Opinion tweeted this. Inflation stings most if you earn less than $300,000. Here's how to deal. Number one, take the bus. Number two, don't buy in bulk. Number three, try lentils instead of meat. And number four, nobody said this would be fun. So when I tell you that this got ratioed to the high heavens, it got ratioed to the high heavens. Virtually 100% of the responses were people shitting on what they were saying. So let me go ahead. I'll just read you some of these. I don't have the graphic queued up to show you guys. But let me read you some of the replies because they are absolutely glorious. Let me let it load. It's uh, taking a second here. Here we go. Now, I should tell you guys, about 98% of the country, 98% makes under $300,000 a year. And they, they, they phrase this as like, well, like that's the poverty line or something. So somebody says $299,000 a year is the new poverty line, according to Bloomberg. Somebody says 
let them eat lentils. Of course, a play on let them eat cake. Um, Marion Williamson says, eat cake. Another uh, tweet here from, and I think this is a conservative too, Jenna Ellis, quote, had a deal, you peasants. Gary Legum says, you know, a tweet that just read, hi, we're assholes, <laughs> would have also sufficed. True. Um, take the bus, as if 45% of America does not have access to public transportation. Um, this is a good one. It's a lentil, Michael. What could it cost? $10? Play on a very famous... What show is that from again? I don't remember what show that's from. But it's a very famous thing. What is it like? How much does a banana cost? It was something like that. Uh, clowns trying to do the New York Times hate-click game, but they can't get on that level. Sad. Um, this lady... One person says, Brittany... This lady really said, LOL, if you're poor, just eat beans and let your pets die. So let me pull it back up. Pull it back up and get to the tweet. So I went and read the entire article. And my original plan was to just go through the entire article with you and, you know, break it down line by line. But here's the reality after reading it. The tweet actually sums it up. The tweet actually lays out, like, here are the points. So they say, take the bus. Another thing they say is, sell your car. Now, in the article, it's, it's questionable. There's, in the headline, doesn't it say something like, you know, sell the extra car or something? In the article, it almost seems more like they're just saying, sell your only car. So that's why it's like, take the bus. Just learn to take the bus. Oh, Jesus. Don't buy in bulk. I don't even know. That's a weird one because sometimes when you buy in bulk, you save money. But in the article, they say, no, you actually don't save money uh, when you buy in bulk. Try lentils instead of meat. So they're literally like, eat beans. Eat beans to save money. Come on, get it together. What's the problem? And then there's one part of the article, which is probably the most grotesque part of the article, is they say, well, don't, like, don't care too much about your pets. Like, don't, sometimes pets are expensive, so you got to be cheaper on that front. And they even say, like, don't get your dog chemotherapy if they have cancer, because that could cost up to, like, $10,000. So in an article on talking about how the peasants should, should act, they're like, just let your dog die. Let your dog die. Just eat beans. Who cares if you're farting all over the place? Just deal with that shit. Take the bus. You got like you got to tighten your belt, dog. You got to get it together. Now, the re- I mean, this is condescending, this is patronizing, but I think the real reason at the core of why people get so frustrated with stuff like this is because, look, if you're in the media, your job should be to rail against the government, rail against the the corrupt politicians and the elites and the billionaires, the people who have effectively rigged the system to make it. So, so many people are struggling. Like, why are you not berating uh, Congress because Congress couldn't pass an extension of the child tax credit, which would have given people an extra $300 or $400, which would have helped massively? Why is that not what your article is about? Why is your article not about, hey, we could use universal pre-K, a lot of other countries have it. We could use free college, a lot of other countries have it. Like, you want to ease the burden for working people? There's very clear, straightforward, obvious ways to ease the burden. I mean, uh, lowering prescription drug prices is the most obvious one. 
administration after administration after administration always says, we're going to do that, we're going to lower the prices, and then nobody ever does it. Biden even has the authority to do that through executive order, and he's not doing that. Where's your article on that? Where's your article on, I know the situation's fucked up, here's why it's fucked up, and here's how we can fix it, and the problem, the problem is with the government. The government is not looking out for your best interest because the government is beholden to corporations. So I'm here to, to be the cop on the beat looking out for you, my, my reader. But clearly, that's not what they do. They finger wag at their readers, and they act like, well, this is really a personal failing on your part. That's the implication here, right? That's the inference. Like, this is on you. This is on you. Why aren't you eating more beans? Why are you giving your dog treatment? That's expensive. Why don't you sell your car? You can have extra money if you sell your car. Duh, do that. They talk about, look, I mean, the used cars and new cars, the prices are going up, so what are we going to do? I mean, you just got to get your shit together and hop on the bus, dog. It's so condescending. It's so pedantic. And we know that whoever's writing this article would never even do these things themselves. They would never do that. It's, it's stunning to me that they think they're being helpful. Because, you know, you had to, on some level when you're writing this, you had to think, like, I'm helping people out here. People are going to be thankful that I'm giving them a list of things that could give them more money and ease some of the burden. This is how they're thinking. It has to be. It has to be how the Teresa lady is thinking when she wrote this. But it's almost – I can't even wrap my mind around the idea that somebody really has these thoughts in the current climate. I can't wrap my mind around it. But they're real. They exist. And, by the way, look, this is the media class right here. That bubble is so deep and so thick, and it is impenetrable. By the way, here's a a, a good policy change that can and should happen at various media organizations. Hire more working-class people. Hire somebody who's actually dealt with a lot of these issues. You know, don't, don't have people in their ivory tower look down on the rest of the population and finger wag and tell them, get your shit together and here's how. Have people who've gone through it who've struggled, who are sympathetic, who know the underlying causes. Because, again, the idea here is if you're struggling, it's just a moral failing on your own part. It's just an ethical failing on your own part. So get your act together. Here's how you can do it. That's the idea. But, guys, I don't know how many times I could go through this, but the fact of the matter is we live in a country where the minimum wage isn't even a living wage. So there are millions of people who are working a full-time job who don't make enough money to survive. That has nothing to do with a lack of effort or, you know, a poor, you know, outlook on the world, or an ethical failing. It has nothing to do with that. It's a reflection on how shitty the system is. It's not a reflection on an individual messing up, but that's clearly not how they look at it. That's not how they look at it at all. So, got really, really bad. Really bad. I can't. I can't, man. How? How is this real? How is this real? Well, look, you wonder why people hate the media. This is like case in point right here. Okay, next. (laughs) 
So Fox News is all over the place on the issue of Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, Tucker Carlson is going with um, a line that is much more in agreement with Putin and stressing the, you know, the idea that this is somewhat defensive in nature and NATO shouldn't have expanded and, you know, why is everybody reflexively taking the side of Ukraine? That's been his line throughout most of this. And you have other elements of Fox News that are really not buying that. Like Hannity's now going, you know, hard in the old school conservative direction of like Putin is a dictator, Putin is a thug. And, you know, we should, he literally cited arming the Mujahideen as a policy success and arming the Contras as a policy success to make the argument, let's arm all of Ukraine, including the Azov Battalion and the neo-Nazis. So you got total disagreement on Fox, which is very rare. It, I, I don't know if I've ever seen an issue where Fox has had this many different viewpoints. Usually they're one note, everybody hammers away at the same talking points, and they're very effective generally as a result of that. Well, now it's a little different. Well, uh, here you have Mark Levin and Larry Kudlow are going to weigh in on what's happening in Russia, and they're going to go after President Biden. But the way that they choose to attack Biden on this is just stunning. Watch.
Biden is going to arm Iran with nuclear warheads. That's what Mark Levin just said. Excuse you? Biden is going to arm Iran with nuclear warheads. If anything, you know who got us closer to Iran having nuclear weapons? Donald Trump, by pulling out of the deal that was working. It was working. That's not according to Kyle. That's not according to the Democratic Party. That's according to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency at the UN. The whole idea of the Iran deal was we lift sanctions, but you allow them in to check your facilities all the time and make sure you never enrich beyond a certain point where you can get weapons. It's, you're only allowed to enrich for, enrich for power for your power grid and for research. And so they were following the deal. Every single expert says they were following the deal to a T. And then Trump pulls out of the deal, it spits in their eye, and therefore makes it more like they're like, all right, I guess we've got to keep enriching because, you know, they don't want to get toppled. And what do we do in uh, Libya, for example? He gave up his weapons, and then we went in there and toppled them anyway. So the idea, oh, Biden's going to arm Iran with nuclear warheads, it's absolute nonsense. He's such a liar. He's just a liar. But look, let's get to the main point here. They said Biden doesn't even attack Putin, even rhetorically he doesn't attack Putin. What the fuck are any of you talking about? In the context of a story where Joe Biden called Putin a war criminal, they're saying he never attacks Putin rhetorically. Well, then what the fuck is that? What is the thing in the exact segment you're currently talking about? What is it? Oh, well, at first he didn't hear them say it, and he didn't want to say those words because that's too mean, and he doesn't want to hurt Putin's feelings. But then when he realized he'd get backlash, he came back and did call him a war criminal. Look, they're reaching. They're reaching so hard. I must wait for this. Give it a rest. Now, by the way, you don't even need me to give you this fact check. It's the most obvious thing in the world. But nonetheless, here we go. Three days ago, three days ago, three days ago, Biden calls Putin, quote, a murderous dictator and a, quote, pure thug. That, now, I'm giving the most recent example, three days ago. And then, of course, called him a war criminal. These guys act like he never, he never says mean words to him. We are sanctioning the entire Russian economy, trying to make it implode. Implode. We did the SWIFT banking sanctions. We're going after the oil and gas. Every single U.S. corporation pulled out of there under pressure from the U.S. government. What is he? He views Putin as an ally. That's another story. Maria Bartiromo said that the other day on Fox. Biden views Putin as an ally. If that's an ally, what the fuck is an enemy? We've armed Ukraine to the teeth. We've done everything short of literal World War III. And they're like, oh, he's so weak on him. These guys are horny for World War III. They're just partisan hacks. Pure thug, murderous dictator, war criminal. Why are you so nice to Vladimir Putin? I am amazed at how these guys, they just make stuff up. They just make stuff up. It, it really boggles the mind. They have to know how deeply dishonest they are. Because they are. It's as dishonest as it gets. And then I love, like, the beginning, he's like, Biden is a dumb guy and a coward. What would you do differently on this issue, Mark Levin? And by the way, also, look, I'll defend Biden calling, you know, Putin a, a murderous thug and a pure dictator and, and a war criminal because it's true. But also, nothing hinges on saying those things. Nothing, and one could even make an argument, hey, that actually makes it less likely that eventually there will be some sort of negotiated settlement. If you say, well, pure evil and pure good is the battle that's going on here, well, why would 
pure good and pure evil make a deal. That's like saying, let's make a deal with Hitler. Well, clearly there was no deal to be made with Hitler because he was unappeasable. So there, you know, there's, there are, there's a whole bunch of implications on um, the negotiation side and the diplomacy side here that they, have, they pay zero mind to. They don't care. So, again, I'll defend Biden saying those things because it's, it's factual, but at the same time, it's like, don't you realize there are other consequences associated with how the president of the United States talks about this stuff? Duh. But he calls him a dumb guy and a coward. What would you do differently, Mark Levin? If Mark Levin was president or Larry Kudlow was president, would you already have a no-fly zone? Would you already shoot down Russian jets so we'd already be in World War III? And you think that makes you what? Smarter? Tougher? And I love how he says he's a, he's a dumb guy and a coward, and then he goes on to explain how he's actually not cowardly at all in how he attacks Republicans. He's actually really vicious now he attacks Republicans. Well, which is it? Is he a coward or is he vicious? Which is it? They don't, it doesn't have to make sense, man. It doesn't have to make sense. This is where we're at with these guys. I don't know how anybody watches this and thinks they're nailing it. I really have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, there, okay, understand something. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. There are no really accurate, intelligent, honest, authentic voices on this issue or any other issue on Fox News. There's just not. There was that one debate on Fox and Friends the other day, which actually turned out to be a good back and forth, where it was Brian Kilmeade and um, uh, Campos Duffy. So they actually had a good back and forth that I liked listening to. But when you look at Fox more generally, man, it is just, it is just a, a sea of suck. That's the best way to describe it. Okay, next. So Larry Kudlow um, was on his show last week, and he gave the best anti-endorsement I've ever seen in my life. He's going to float somebody who he wants to run for president, and he seems excited about this idea. Take a look. I was a Democrat a very long time ago, actually. It's 45 years ago. It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Yeah. Uh, and I worked for two presidents who were Democrats, Reagan and Trump. But I really want to see Joe Manchin run for president as a Democrat. He is my kind of Democrat. He was my kind of Democrat. Joe Manchin is, I agree with Joe Manchin, probably 90% of the things, maybe even more than that. Mm -hmm. He has shown backbone and toughness. He stood up to Biden. He stood up to the progressives. He calls them all a bunch of socialists. So that's what, come on, Kamala Harris can't be pressed. She can't possibly. Can't happen, or am I wrong? I mean, there are several ways it could happen. (laughs) Um, That could be an eventuality here. Um, I hope she does not become president. I don't think that she's terribly well-equipped for the current job, which is much less important. But here's the issue. I hate to burst your bubble. Oh. But you know what oh. most Democrats call a Larry Kudlow Democrat? Yeah. A Republican. <laughs> and a lot of them view right. Joe Manchin that way. Correct. Rando guest on Fox News. He's right. He's, that's exactly right. Um, and we call... Joe Manchin, a Republican, because that is his voting record. So I've gone through it before, but 538 did this thing in the era of Trump where they track what percentage of the time the politicians vote with Trump. And with Manchin, I think overall the number was 50%, and there were even legislative sessions where it was 60%. So he votes with Republicans more often than he votes with Democrats, or at the very least, 
the totality of his record is about 50-50. So, but look, he's gushing over the idea. I want to see Manchin run for president as a Democrat. He says, I agree with Manchin on 90% of the things. The reason why Manchin has now become a hero to the right and a hero to these Fox News personalities is because he is, him and uh, Kirsten Sinema, are largely responsible for tanking Build Back Better. Now, Build Back Better, it was watered down time after time after time, but the original piece of legislation was phenomenal. The original piece of legislation was championed by Bernie Sanders leading the negotiations, which is why we had a bill that had elder care, that had universal pre-K, that had lower prescription drug prices, that had an extended child tax credit, it had free college, it had higher taxes on the wealthy in a variety of different ways, raising corporate taxes, uh, raising the uh, top marginal income tax rate. It was a great piece of legislation. And it was Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who said, we're against it. And the negotiations got so absurd he pretended to be a good faith actor for so long, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I like that thing, but I don't like that thing. Get rid of that thing, and then I'll vote for it. Then they would get rid of that thing and be like, well, uh, did I say I would vote for that? I mean, I don't like this other thing in it. Okay, then they would drop that. Well, I don't like that thing either. And then eventually at the end they were just like, here, Joe, here, take a pen, Manchin, and write whatever bill you want, we'll pass it. And he didn't write anything because he, he didn't want any of it. He wanted to kill it. Now, there is a fair point when people say, well, it's the rotating villain theory. So if it wasn't Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin who were blocking this, it would have been Mark Warner and somebody else who's a, a right-wing Democrat. And that's probably true to some extent, but there were certainly at least some provisions in Build Back Better that could have been passed and weren't passed. And it is Joe Manchin and it is Kirsten Sinema who are mostly responsible for tanking it. And of course, it's Joe Biden's fault for not knowing how to twist arms, not knowing how to get yes for an answer, not knowing how to play politics. And in a sense, it could all come back to him as well. But they are gushing over Manchin because Manchin killed actual movement in a social democratic direction in this country. The biggest movement in that direction since FDR and the New Deal. And the fact of the matter is, this is the part that really gets them hard about Joe Manchin. He is, at the same time, he was blocking this legislation and, you know, making an ass of himself and totally tanking the entire agenda. Homeboy was raising a tremendous amount of money. So if oil and gas, for example, did you know he is the number one recipient of oil and gas money? In the same way, I think it was Kirsten Sinema was number one in pharmaceutical money. Number one in oil and gas money is Joe Manchin. I think he had more than three times the person who's second, who I think was Kevin McCarthy. Now, why? Why is that? Because he was taking that money at the exact same time. He was like, oh, maybe I'll vote for the bill. Maybe I won't. And the donors were like, no, you won't. No, you won't. How much money do you want? We'll give you anything. And they just kept flooding him with money, campaign contributions. And, you know, they, they were buying his loyalty. They were buying his vote. That's why these guys love Joe Manchin. Because at the end of the day, he plays ball with the establishment. He was also taking money from Republican donors as he was playing footsie with, maybe I'll vote for this bill, maybe I won't, we'll have to see. And then all the donors came out of the woodworks and were like, here, what do you want? You want pharma money? You want big oil money? You want some other industry to give you money? Take it, take it, take it, take it, take it. But please, do the right thing, do the right thing. Republican donors, here, take it, take it. I know I love Trump, but hey, I'll also love you. You want more money? And he took the money, killed the whole thing. So that's why these guys love him. Because he blocked movement in a social democratic direction in this country, which is desperately, desperately needed. And I love how they say, 
Well, he calls Biden and the progressives a bunch of socialists, which they're saying is, hey, it's accurate, right? Imagine having your worldview and the political spectrum in your mind so warped that you look at Biden and you look at the progressives and say they're a bunch of socialists. Even Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. He calls himself a democratic socialist. In reality, he's a social democrat. Same with AOC, same with the squad. You know, uh, Joe Biden is not even that. He is a corporate democrat. If anything, his politics are more in agreement with Joe Manchin than they are with Bernie Sanders. Because the other thing is, Joe Biden has the ability to sign executive orders on a bunch of things. He could legalize marijuana today. He's choosing not to. He could lower prescription drug prices today. He's choosing not to. He could abolish student loan debt today. He's choosing not to. This idea, all Manchin has to do is say the scare word. They're socialists, and aren't I just so reasonable and modern in the middle? No, they are definitely not socialists. Uh, and you are not reasonable and moderate in the middle. You are corrupt. You are corrupt, which is why you vote how you vote. And then also the, the personal money he makes to it. It's not just campaign contributions. It's also he has a direct state, uh, a direct stake, excuse me, in uh, oil and natural gas and coal. He makes hundreds of thousands from that every single year. And you think that, guy, that guy's going to sit on the climate committee that determines what we're going to do with green and renewable energy? It's a joke. It's a joke. And they love the guy. He's now a hero on the right. They want him to run for president. I got news for you. If he were to run for president in a Democratic primary, he would absolutely get draxed. He would get draxed. Any other Democrat would beat him. Fucking like Amy Klobuchar would tap dance on his political grave because for all of the flaws of Democratic uh, primary voters, and there are many, you know, the rank partisanship sometimes gives them brain worms and they're willing to go with who's the most electable, which is why Bernie, it, was, it wasn't Bernie and it was Biden. Um, but Joe Manchin does not have anybody fooled, does not have anybody fooled. It is virtually every Democratic voter is like, this guy's a hack, this guy's corrupt, and this guy's killing even a few policy changes in the correct direction. He won't even allow that. So I will agree with... Uh, Kudlow on one thing. He says Kamala Harris can't be president. (laughs) Well, she can if Biden dies. And uh, it's possible that she somehow, in the same way that Hillary sort of tripped over herself and won the primary, won WikiLeaks, has other things to say about that, and they're right to expose it. Uh, In the same way Biden sort of tripped over himself and made it, it is possible she somehow gets through a primary because she has the highest name recognition because she's VP. But she is hated. There's no doubt about it. I mean, what was it, 28% approval rating? But uh, Joe Manchin's national approval rating, I don't know what it is, but I have to imagine it's roughly in that same ballpark, you know. A um, lot of bad options, man, a lot of bad options. But the right-wingers have made their choice of who their favorite Democrat is, and it's clear. All right, next. So we have uh, the return of the firing squad in South Carolina. Let me go ahead and throw this article up for you. This is in Raw Story and actually originally in Common Dreams. Absolutely barbaric. South Carolina okays firing squad executions. So let me read you some of the piece here. In a move described by death penalty abolitionists as barbaric, South Carolina on Friday 
gave the final approval for executions by firing squad. According to the state, the South Carolina Department of Corrections informed State Attorney General Alan Wilson that the agency is now able to shoot condemned inmates to death using a three-person volunteer team. A law passed last year in the Republican-led state gives condemned prisoners the choice between the electric chair, firing squad, or lethal injection if available. The state has been unable to procure lethal injection drugs for years, as international and domestic manufacturers have been increasingly reluctant to allow their products to be used to kill people. The Associated Press reports Democratic State Senator uh, Dick Harputlian, awesome name, a former prosecutor who is now a criminal defense attorney, introduced the firing squad option as a more humane alternative to the electric chair and lethal injection, which are both prone to horrific mishaps. So um, there are, in fact, I have the other states here. There are some other states that allow the firing squad. There are, it's Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Utah give uh, prisoners the option of the firing squad. And as of right now in South Carolina, there are 35 men awaiting execution. The last time they put somebody to death was in 2011, but there are still 35 men on death row. So it's yet to be seen exactly what's going to happen with these people and when, but they now have the option of lethal injection, electric chair, firing squad. So here's my take on this. Now, the obvious broader takeaway is you got you got to abolish the death penalty. You have to, because uh, according to a study from a few years back, I remember we covered this on the show, about 4% of the time when you do the death penalty, the government kills the wrong people. Now, there's this intricate and detailed system in place to try to prevent that from happening, but it still happens. You know, you have a right to appeal, et cetera, but 4% of the time they kill the wrong people. So that's 4% of the time, 4 out of 100 people who are put to death didn't do it. And that is being done with your tax money in your name that we're putting people to death. Now, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with... Uh, Sometimes the federal government murders innocent people. No, murdering innocent people is wrong. And by the same logic of the death penalty, you would have to put the death penalty to death because the death penalty has killed the innocent, which is murder. So for that reason alone, um, it shouldn't exist, apart from any other arguments about is it really a deterrent, yada, yada, so on and so forth. Um, But as long as we have the death penalty, I have to say, If I was on death row and I have those three options, I'm absolutely picking firing squad. No doubt about it. I'm definitely not picking um, lethal injection because, number one, they haven't made the the drugs with the proper cocktail in a long time. And even the proper cocktail had issues. Uh, There was a lot of reporting on that. But so now all the things that they've tried to pick is like, well, this can be the substitute. There have been horror stories of people getting the new lethal injection and foaming at the mouth and technically being alive for like 10 minutes or 20 minutes after they got the injection and writhing in pain. And so that's out. Um, and the electric chair, I don't know about you guys, I think the firing squad is way better than the electric chair. I mean, I've, I've tried, you know, those dog collars that give you a little shock when, uh, when they go in an area they shouldn't go. Um, I've tried those things, and it gives a little shock, man. You feel it. And I can only imagine the voltage that's needed to kill somebody and how that would feel in the interim before you die, like how long it takes. So I think it's a no-brainer. I would absolutely rather have firing squad than the other. So I'm against the death penalty. It shouldn't exist. We kill the wrong people. But if we're going to have the death penalty, I absolutely, I would say every state that has the death penalty should allow this option. Because the lethal injection drugs you can't get anymore, and the ones they're using don't fucking work well. And electric chair seems even more barbaric. And so if you're going to do it, which you shouldn't, but if you're going to do it, I'm going firing squad all the way. Now, I think, look, I think the reason why it went away for a while, the firing squad, in most states, and it's still not there in most states, is because 
when you do the lethal injection, assuming you had the, you know, the mix that sort of worked better, um, there's this veneer of seriousness and responsibility to it where you don't really see what you're actually doing. So you are, if you give them the lethal injection, they just quietly pass away. You think, oh, this is, it sort of takes the bite out of what you're doing. It sort of um, makes it less obvious. The imagery isn't as barbaric, but that's really more about just protecting our own fifis over the reality of what we're doing. Whereas the firing squad, it's less painful, but it's more honest. And you can't really pretend like you're not doing what you're doing. And so that's why we got rid of it, because we, the way we felt about it was icky. But if you're going to have it, you should have this. I don't know. You guys tell me. Uh, everybody uh, let me know in the comment section what you think the, um, the way, if you had to pick a way to go, what would you pick? I don't, they don't do, I don't think they do the gas chamber anymore, right? Maybe in some states do. I really don't know. But if I had to pick between those options, I would pick firing squad, and it's not even close. So on the one hand, I'm with all the human rights organizations that are like, you, you can't do this. But as long as we're going to have the death penalty, I wish that was the option in every single state. It's more honest. It's less painful. And so it's the least bad of all bad options. Okay. So there's uh, some news that came out. There was a study that dropped uh, about the time during the pandemic. There was skyrocketing alcoholism deaths. So take a look at this here. This is in uh, Raw Story, originally in the New York Daily News. Alcohol-related deaths rose 25% in first year of pandemic study finds. So let me give you some of the body of the article here. Alcohol-involved deaths increased 25% in 2020 from 2019. According to research published Friday, from 1997 to 2017, the average year-over-year increase was only 2%. Previous studies found that alcohol consumption increased sharply in 2020 as well. In 2020, 99,017 people died from alcohol-related causes. In 2019, that number was only 78,927 people. Quote, we're not surprised. It's unfortunate, but we sort of expected to see something like this. The study's lead author, Aaron White, told CNN, it's not uncommon for people to drink more when they're under more uh, duress the increase occurred across all age groups is what that goes on to say. So, I mean, there's a, a couple points to make about this. The first one is alcohol deaths are rising massively, but there is no chatter in the country about, like, let's ban alcohol. Now, I think that's a good thing. I don't think we should ban alcohol. But I do find it interesting, the cognitive dissonance and the double standards that we have in regards to other substances, where whenever a substance that's already illegal, whenever all oh, the deaths on that rose – people go, well, then it's good that we have it banned. We should, like, ban it harder. So it's weird how with alcohol we just sort of grandfathered in all of the negative consequences that go along with it. Now, again, I'm in favor of grandfathering in the negative consequences, just to be clear. But it is funny that we don't have that reaction ever about, like, alcohol death rose, therefore ban alcohol, but any other drug, we probably would have that feeling of, like, well, we should really crack down on this. So you guys know my take on this stuff. I think it should be legal, tax, and regulated, all the various drugs. You know, the ones that are, have, like, no upside to it, you could sort of regulate out of existence, like bath salts or whatever, fentanyl. Um, but a lot of drugs should be legal, taxed, and regulated. 
and give people the choice, give people the option. I also would have rehab available as part of a Medicare for All system so people can get substance abuse treatment if it's needed. Um, but the other point here is, like, why? Why did this happen? Why was there such an increase in alcohol-related deaths during the first year of the pandemic? And, you know, the variety of answers, but uh, I think people felt uniquely stressed, and they felt, um, you know, you, there was a, this feeling of hopelessness and this feeling of anxiety and, and distress during the entire pandemic where you're trying to keep yourself safe, you're trying to keep your family safe. A lot of people had experiences where family members passed away and died, and that could lead to excess drinking. And uh, when people are isolated and alone and there's really not many social gatherings or other things to do, you're going to lean on the substances more. And so this is one of the uh, side effects and consequences of going through such a tumultuous time. And, you know, in one sense, you look at it and you say, I'm surprised deaths only rose 25% in the first year of the pandemic. Uh, You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they rose 80%. Alcohol-related deaths rose 80%. So... This goes hand in hand with all those other studies about increase in psychological illnesses. There was an increase in uh, domestic violence. You know, people cooped up together for extended periods of time, and some people just snap and bad things happen. So it's not it's not good. But again, I think the solution here is more: we should have universal uh, rehab treatment centers in the same way we should have a universal healthcare system. And that would definitely help people with this. People having access to counseling, people having access to experts who can help is really the only solution. I certainly wouldn't recommend banning alcohol or regulating it more strictly, but I also think we should be consistent on that front with other substances, which unfortunately people aren't. All right, final story of the day, y'all. So let's have a little bit of fun here stumbled across something on Twitter that uh, was just glorious. It was just, this is so brilliant in so many ways. So the Hercules actor, a guy named Kevin Sorbo, definitely entered the dumb tweet hall of fame here. Let me show you what he said. Um, He said, remember when we treated the flu with tea, soup, and saltines instead of communism? Remember when we treated the flu with tea, soup, and saltines instead of communism? This is like multiple different levels of idiocy. This is, I mean, this is record-breaking idiocy. So first of all, what policies are you talking about? Like all of the COVID restrictions are gonzo. They're done. They're over. They're done. We don't, like I love like the trucker protest that went to, we're against the vaccine mandates, bro. What vaccine mandates? There are no mandates. There, there are no mandates. The Supreme Court slapped them down. Biden was like, all right. And by the way, that wasn't even a hard mandate. That was vaccinate or test. They gave you the option of testing. But that's gone. That's done. Now, if you have an issue with a vaccine mandate, you'd have to talk to your employer, your corporate employer. Some of them have vaccine mandates, but that's it. That's all that's left. So what, do you, what COVID restrictions are you talking about? There is no lockdown. There is no vaccine mandate mandate. Even the the mask mandates are going away, if not totally gone. And Homeboy's tweeting this on March 18th, 2022. I don't like. And then, of course, the other thing is why the conflation with like uh, COVID regulations with communism like that is definitionally communism. That's not true at all. There's right wing governments. There's left wing governments. There's all sorts of governments who had COVID restrictions. So it's not 
it, that's not communism. Like, I honestly think, I don't know if these people have ever read a textbook definition of what communism is. They just, anything they don't like, there's like, that's communism. This is communism. This has to be communism, right? This is communism. Like, what are you talking about? I would love to, in, in real time, with one of these people, just look them in the eyes and go, define communism. I would love to, because what you're going to hear is, you hear the crickets, that famous cricket sound, as they're thinking, and their head is totally empty. But the other part of this that just is the cherry on top of stupidity, it's the smorgasbord of stupidity, is reminiscing about the time when we treated the flu with tea, soup, and saltines. Okay, that's... Kevin, we weren't really treating the flu with tea, soup, and saltines. That was like our layman's attempt based on no evidence whatsoever to let you sort of ride out the flu. So, okay, Kevin, I don't know if you know this, but we have this thing called antibiotics. We have penicillin for bacterial infections. That uh, kind of is a cure. You know, there's issues with, you know, some of the antibiotics over time become less useful because the bacterial bacterial infections evolve, and so you need new antibiotics. Like, of course, but it's largely a cure. You get strep throat, you go to the doctor, they give you the medicine, it clears it up relatively quickly, right? We don't have that for viral infections. We don't have the equivalent of antibiotics for viral infections. And so really the idea is when you have a cold, you just got to kind of ride it out. There's some antiviral treatments, but they treat more of the symptoms than like the root cause. They have vaccines for many of them, but for ones that we don't have a vaccine, if if you get it, you just got to sort of ride it out. So when people give you tea, soup, and saltines, it's just like, Sit back, relax, let's try to ride this thing out. Maybe the tea or the soup will help your throat a little bit if your throat's a little sore. And the saltines are just something bland so you don't, you know, end up throwing up. Like, did, did you think it was a cure? Like, does he think that tea, soup, and saltines are a cure for the flu? And does he think that if some new treatment came out that would be better, that he'd be like, remember back in the good old days when we had stuff that didn't work, like tea, soup, and saltines to cure the flu? Remember that? Do you remember that? He thought he nailed this. When he was tweeting this, he was thinking like, yes, own the libs, bro. Own the libs. I I don't know how to impress this upon you, but owning the libs as like a primary political project is not an ideology and it's not intelligent. Like if your whole political worldview is, how do I own the libs? You look ridiculous. Like, you might think that in your little in-group, like, you guys are hilarious and you're an alien, but you're just not. And by the same token, owning the conservatives is also sort of vapid and vacuous and empty. So that, as a whole political project in and of itself, is, is low IQ shit. But this is as low as a low IQ gets, dog. Remember when we treated the flu with tea, soup, and saltines instead of communism? Who... In- in the, in the U.S. government, who even is a communist? I'm sure he would say every Democrat is a communist, but could you imagine believing that? Bernie Sanders isn't even a socialist, and he's the furthest left. Bernie Sanders, if you look at the textbook definition and the policies that he supports, he's a social democrat. He's not even a democratic socialist. He's a social democrat. The furthest left we have is still still works within the confines of a capitalist system. We are so far from communism, you can't even fucking see it through binoculars, dog. 
But here, here he is. I'm sure he thinks Biden's a communist. I'm sure he thinks Barack Obama was a communist and probably thought he was a Kenyan too and a Muslim. I'm sure of it. I just, I can't imagine being interested in politics and being this wrong about stuff. Like, clearly he's interested in it, but I, I don't know if he doesn't read stuff or he does read stuff that it's all propaganda far-right garbage. I don't know, but I can't imagine being this obsessed with politics and just being this dim. So, Kevin, I would say you were better as Hercules, but I didn't like you there either. All right, guys, we're done. I love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. I am out. Peace.